Hello again, friends! And you are our friends, and welcome back to Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru right here, the final edition of 2023. I am your host, the great Brian Last. This has been... Well, thank you very much. I guess that is the first one of the show. And of course, the dinger himself, Mr. Trendy McTrenderson once again. <laughs> the leader of the cult of Cornette. Either the most evil man in wrestling or the most loved man in wrestling. Take your pick, Mr. Jim Cornette. He's evil. His middle name is Misery. Oh, Brian, you know, and by the way, once again, for the great Brian Last, I've been waiting all day to do that. Uh, they seemed to like it the other day. For those of you who know, you know. But thank you very much for that introduction, Brian, for the last glorious episode of the drive through for the calendar year of 2023 when we reconvene, unless somebody does something ignorant, or at least on a, on a drive through episode, a full-fledged one, it'll be 2024. You'll be hearing from us tomorrow. Yeah. We're going based was, on someone doing something stupid. I, I can barely hear right now. My ears have been assaulted by such nonsense. But nevertheless, the point is, here we are at the end of the year. Merry Christmas, everybody. And we, we were hoping to lead the program with, I don't know, some Christmas carols. You know, Bree, my girl over at the post office, till I quit going and got the feather bottoms in, involved, she always thought that the song was walking around the Christmas tree. Walking around the Christmas walking tree. Walking around. Walking around the Christmas tree. How big is that tree? Well, you know how people <laughs> mishear the lyrics. Yeah. And, and in some case, and then, you know, the, the, the lady that worked next to her, there at the, at the next window at the post office, she was a large woman. I would say that walking around her would lead to some extra. She was, she was in a traffic accident one time. Car ran into her. Cop said, why'd you do it? The driver said, I didn't have enough gas to go around her. So this is, what it, this is what happens when you don't have to go to the post office anymore? You start making fun of all the people there that you've been encountering? Well, you, you remember John the hunch, Hunchback. Who could forget him? He was a famous character. But uh, folks, you can, can they find that on the, uh, on the YouTube channel? Or is that in the Patreon by now? The, the, the years of the post office. Oh, boy. Well, it's definitely in the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Cornet. $5 a month. The archive going back to 2013. And there's definitely some of that stuff on YouTube. Maybe that's the next omnibus. This is how you give Jace Nakarato a heart attack. The next omnibus, Jace, John the Hunchback. Well, the post office tale. The post office years. Yes, yes. That can be, well, we'll have that out by New Year's week. Sharknado, get on it. 2026. Anyway, we were, I was trending again was where you were going with that. And I started and we took a sidetrack. But I believe it was yesterday. yesterday Yesterday afternoon, you know, we were trying to have, we're easing into the holidays here at the castle and Stace and Harley and myself and, and trying to have a relaxing afternoon, just anticipating with bated breath, the opportunity to do the last show with you of the year. And I, I, I pitched the idea. I said, well, let's, let's get some Freddy's steak burgers delivered. And as soon as she picks her phone up, she says, why are you trending? Because I've, I've said nothing. 
I've done nothing. I've retweeted a few of the clips. I don't know what I, you know, what I may have done to inflame people and come to find out that people were not even inflamed. They were inflamed about the concept of me. And who else might appreciate the concept of me or have things in, in common in their viewpoint with the concept of me? I'm trying to figure out how to describe this. I was trending on Twitter because someone else that those people apparently dislike as well put on Instagram the thumbnail picture of one of our YouTube clips. Have I gone through that goddamn procedure and laid that out as succinctly as possible? Almost succinctly, but you certainly laid it out. I guess what happened was the other day on Instagram, one of our guest artists, George Livanitis, who just had a baby, and George... And is not going to name it John Laranitis. No, and that's not his last name either. And we say hello to George and his family who are listening right now in Australia. But George did this fine artwork of Stephen P. New as a lawyer representing... I don't even know. In the artwork, Punk and A. Steel were on the stand, and you were the judge. Well, yeah, he, he, you couldn't put everybody in the whole courtroom in there, so he got the important players in, me, Punk, Steele, and, and of course, Stephen P. New in the center of the piece. And it's a very nice piece, and we put it up, and it got a good reaction on YouTube, and I guess CM Punk, maybe when he was on YouTube looking to see what's happening on that day, what's trending, he saw this video, and he... Because he's very trendy also. He liked the image, or he took the image, and he sent it to his Instagram followers as part of his Instagram story. And for some people, it well, was some... And he, and he added a caption, though, that I thought was, was very, uh, very apropos, saying, this should be hanging in the Louvre. Yeah, thanks a lot, Punk. As soon as he did that, George raised his rate. Well, it, it had to happen sooner or later. I mean, 10 bucks only goes so far, even in Australia. The image went out there, and to some people, it was a eureka moment. That, oh my God, he has the same lawyer as Jim Cornette. <laughs> and to other people, it was a cool moment. Wow. Stephen P. New is a real person after all these years yes. of hearing about him, and he represents the good guys. And again, people lost their minds, what apparently little they have. I don't know, when you got that much helium in your head, I guess things float away easily. You turn your head sideways, your ear canal's big enough, poop, there goes your brain up into space, like a little kernel of popcorn. But they have somehow, to figure out a way to dislike all of us at the same time, they have overlooked, first of all, Stephen, who almost com almost completely innocent in all this, but he hasn't gotten a lot of heat because he's done a variety of representation of wrestlers as individuals, as clients, as friends against the big corporations, as well as other Small people, the little of the everyday folks against big corporations, that's his line of work, and he generally makes his clients happy. But for some reason, the idea of Jim Cornette and CM Punk sharing some idea or concept or mutual friend or fucking viewpoint... <laughs> inflamed people to where they completely lost track of their fucking senses and somehow 
equated that to both of us having somehow become right-wingers. Jim hates the Bucks, and Punk hates the Bucks. It's the apocalypse! And it's it, it's insane. It's, well, now that Punk has gone back to the WWE, has he abandoned all of his principles? What? What the fuck? And, and said some and some guy some guy said, "Well, this could be a, a career killer for Punk." Like like anybody that he goes out in front of in any of those WWE shows are going to have a fucking clue what the fuck he was referring to to begin with. Or even know he referred to it. They're just there to see CM Punk as he's a superstar, you fucking morons. And by the way, this is the most popular wrestling podcast ever. And AEW is losing fans. You should shut up about it. It'll kill his career. It'll help his career, if anything. Good Lord. And I mean, again, I'll, you know, I just dismiss, I tolerate with, with laughter and condescension. People, he's racist, he's sexist, he's homophobic, he's an asshole. Because only idiots believe that. They don't listen to the program. Well, the asshole part, I might own up some of that. But 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 calling me a right-winger? They've gone too far, Brian. They've gone too far. Especially in support of who they're allegedly supporting because they're Buckaroos fans and they're AEW fans and they're Fans of all the people that we fucking blister and we say bad things about their favorite wrestlers and they're the ones that are either fanatical in some right-wing way. The buckaroos are the religious fanatics. The cons gave money to fucking Trump. So did Jericho. And his wife went to the insurrection and bragged about it on Facebook. But Punk and I are somehow in this fucking ilk. Well, how do they get it? Where do they get it? Well, how see, does this? The problem is Jericho donating money and the cons donating money. These aren't things they brag about. These are things that people find through public records because you have to make this public what's donated to a politician. The Bucks have made their views pretty obvious in the past. All you and Punk have done is a podcast talking about your ultra-liberal views and <laughs> wear t-shirts <laughs> for trans rights and gay rights and women's rights on television other than that you guys are ultra right-wingers the likes of which we haven't seen since jerry falwell have never been seen before falwell was a liberal that pinky commie <laughs> pinky commie jerry falwell really and that you know that should have been a goddamn gimmick too in the in the 60s during the cold war a pinky commie Maybe even yeah, that would have been. You know what? That was the that was the manager's name, the girl manager, Pinky Kami. And there's General Kami with his manager, Pinky Kami. Anyway, um, so yes, yeah, so then I trended for however long, and Punk trended, and people called for the end of his career. He's the hottest star in business, and will continue to get hotter. We're apparently the hottest podcast in business. We'll continue to get hotter. Check out the views on YouTube for Jim Cornette on smart appliances versus anybody else talking about shit that nearly claimed all their lives. I saw someone send the picture out. It was the most ridiculous thing. It was, I guess, from Punk going to NXT or the Performance Center or whatever. If they're the same thing or different, I don't even know. But he was there and he took pictures with various talent. Some of the women 
And it was a picture of all the women. And it said, see, no men. No men. Like he's there as a predator. I mean, this is how sick some of these people are. What's he supposed to say? I'm sorry, Nikita. I've hit my photo quota for the day for women. I can't take any more. It's insane. Well, and, and again, do the people think that he was going up to them and say, could I have my picture taken with you, a uh, new trainee uh, Rosie Dozy? And maybe he did. Who knows? Maybe he did want a picture with one or two he, people. He probably never met these. These are brand new fucking NXT. I can understand if it's the main roster, but he probably hasn't met these people before. They were probably asking for him for a picture because when a... Talent on the roster of his level and or magnitude of him uh, comes down to to visit and do that. Normally, he doesn't go around asking the talent to take pictures with him when he first meets them. It's the other way around. Oh, could I have a picture taken with you, CM Punk? So that's not his fault anyway. See, this just is another exposure of something we've kind of been on the forefront of dealing with. The ninny hysterical fan. It started before AEW when the Young Bucks and Colt Cabana and people that either you rejected or you just simply didn't want to book because it was too expensive took out their frustrations for their careers on you. <laughs> and then when things started to get better for them, still, you were the boogeyman. They needed you to be the bad guy to get all their fans riled up. See, he was wrong. He was so wrong. He wanted to work with us. He wanted to go on the road and work with us. No, he didn't, you idiots. So then all these nitty fans had a problem with you because of all that. Then AEW starts and you point out the bad shit. And you still see it now. Now it's even more ridiculous. Let's face it. No, the first few shows, they shone a bright LED fucking spotlight on the bad shit to where you couldn't really overlook it because it was so glaring. And this whole time they kept saying you're out of touch. While this audience kept growing and more and more people felt like Jim was representing their voice as a wrestling fan, you were out of touch. We were all out of touch. And here we are, 2023 going into 2024. We have all this audio archived. Where were we wrong? Where was this show or the experience ever wrong in telling you what was going to happen and the reality of it? And this audience keeps growing. Out of touch. Are the Young Bucks in touch right now? Are the Young Bucks hysterical fans in touch? Or are they out of touch with reality? Who's more popular right now, Jim Cornette or the Young Bucks? They're out of touch. Go look at They're their YouTube numbers. Go look at their YouTube. There's a reason they've abandoned their YouTube show. We run them off of YouTube like scalded dogs. All we saw was assholes and elbows of the buckaroos as they bonsai off the YouTube channel. So when people want to talk about out of touch and everything, and people can complain on Twitter about you, the audience loving you is three times as large on just Twitter alone. And what's more out of touch? People who are consistent and time proves them to be correct? Or 60-year-old men whose hair goes from gray to black to red <laughs> and they're trying desperately to fit in with an audience that's abandoning them? But, but now there's, there's, there's something to be said for the fellow kids out there. And we, we need to try to educate them. They need to learn, Brian. That's the problem is the kids and the 
And the people with the shifting hair colors, they need to learn not to just go with the fads, not just the instant gratification or the self-gratification <laughs> or whatever it is that they're, they're going. They need, to, they need to look at the overall thing for history. How is this all going to play out in the end? And that's where you and I and people of our magnitudinous ilk uh, come out ahead because they're just going with every little willy-nilly fad and then the hula hoop and there's the pet rock. Oh, it's so shiny. But you and I are like astronomers that are looking out into the future. That's where you got that time travel machine for. Hey, Jim, from what you see on Twitter, serious question. How does the hysterical smart fan, not all smart fans, obviously, just the hysterical smart fan, the hysterical Young Bucks fan compared to like the Rock and Roll Express fans, the girls in the 80s, in terms of just their reaction to things and how they behave? Well, it... <laughs> It's different because it's now uh, 32-year-old men acting like 14-year-old girls. And so that's, that. I mean, there's, there's similar behavior, but with a vastly different demographic. Does that make any sense? But in, in all honesty, I understood the, the 80s fans or the 80s young fans, Rock and Roll Express fans, better than I do these current fans today because those girls weren't smart to the business. They thought that here's these cute guys that we like and we have their poster and it's like any other rock and roll teen idols or movie idols and whether James Dean or goddamn whatever the fuck in any era, right? Frank Sinatra was a teen idol one time in his career. Very big with the Bobby Soxers. The Bobby Soxers. So the point is it's not it wasn't a new phenomenon and it happened in wrestling and those teenage girls generally between well un, in, under 22 um they ge they genuinely believed whether you can talk about anybody being smart to fucking wrestling or not it's fucking teenage girls right they lived and died with those guys and they hated us and they would write us legitimate letters in crayon when I turn 18, I'll find you and kill you. That was an exact quote. And they're in the Midnight Express book, and maybe someday I'll, I'll do a book just of the goddamn mail, right? But the point is, this is, these are adults who are well aware the business is a work, and that these guys are... The only damage that's really being done to them is not by the opponents, it's by themselves. Sometimes by the opponents when they're klutzy enough. And it's 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 not even the grown adult men who could get behind Steve Austin or fucking Jackie Fargo or anybody of that ilk in between who could take a few fucking beers and goddamn get lost the idea this is a fight, maybe when climbing the ring. It's a bunch of guys sitting there waiting to watch people cartwheel. Fuck. Just fuck. So to have this level of not only misinformation and outright delusion and not understanding the personalities involved and just whatever the fuck you've heard somebody else say on Twitter and being that vehement about it, I think they're fucking mentally bankrupt and cognitively impaired, just as a first fucking blush statement. Plus, you have to understand it must be really hard 
for a lot of fans who bought into the AEW myth and the AEW dream and everything about the Bucks and the Elite and, you know, we're doing it for everyone else. There are fans who bought into that. I've been doing this for 40 years and watching it for 50, and they just didn't want to think that I knew what I was talking about because it conflicted with their fucking delusional ideas of what wrestling's supposed to be. Is that goddamn where we've come? Well, my point is they were mad at you when you first started saying these things. Imagine how mad they are at you now when all these things are coming <laughs> to fruition. That's the point. <sighs> you didn't go away. They thought you would. They thought they were going to be able to kill you off. And here you are, with your pictures going to the Louvre. They almost bored me to death. They almost got me to go away that way. Well, I gotta ask you a question about all this, because enough people have made a comment that it's worth bringing up here on the show. The idea of you showing up at Monday Night <laughs> Raw, or perhaps a Royal Rumble or a WrestleMania to counteract whoever CM Punk needs to counteract to be there in his corner... He doesn't have a wise man. He has a wise guy. I don't know what you are. <laughs> he doesn't have a wise man. He's got a smart ass. The people requesting, hoping, demanding for a Jim Cornette CM Punk on-air union. What do you have to say? Uh, the short answer is no, and the long answer is I'm about to tell you why. And it, it, it varies in... Again, it's all context, and it's all the audience, and it's all timing. And I'm not saying that in a perfect world when all those things happen that I would not want to work with CM Punk. I actually probably would, right? But not at the age of 62 and for other... <laughs> in what what age... if you get a chance to hit Heyman with the racket? No, 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 no. Listen to me. If, the, if, this, if this was AEW we were talking about before all the fucking last shit happened and goddamn blah, 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 and maybe before All Out and the press scrum and the fight and everybody's fucking whatever, if I had come out there with CM Punk in AEW, it would have had an impact on their business, on the television ratings and whatever we would have been involved with on pay-per-view, there would have been a, I would think, noticeable impact on that because of the numbers that we are talking about and the audience that we are talking about. And every, and I would think that in, with that audience, a predominant portion of the audience would have not only known who I was and remembered who I was, but probably have a strong current opinion of who I am and what I fucking do, right? Yes, there are some seats may have been set on fire in that instance. And that uh, would have been, if you were going to do it, that may have been the place to do it because in the WWE, with that audience that is so much larger, so much broader, so much more of the the people that not only attend the TV tapings, but just uh, the shows on the road, whatever, having a more current view of the business, a more casual, however you want to describe it. Yes, they probably, a significant portion of them would look at me and go, oh, 
shit, he managed fucking Yokozuna and the British Bulldog and Owen Hart and Vader. Or, you know, he even he did the Raw commentaries. What's he been doing the past 20 fucking years? It would not have had these or would not have the same cachet with that audience, which is broader and more general, more mainstream. And then with my age again, yes, you could have got a pop in a, and I'm not saying I wish they'd have done this. I'm just saying it would matter more to that smaller, more niche audience. And you could have got a pop for me just coming out and fucking farting into the goddamn microphone or whatever and doing a one-time appearance because that, it's not like Tony, he doesn't goddamn just do shit once or people don't show up or whatever. The fucking guy flinging the goddamn pizza was on their TV one time. That'd be a hell of a move. Jim Cornette's going to be here tonight. What's he going to say? And instead of saying anything, you fart into the mic and then you leave? And then just, yeah. <laughs> but it, with the WWE, here's the thing. Punk and I could probably end up, in the course of, say, a year, 18 months, two years, making a somewhat noticeable difference in at least the entertainment value of the program, if not business in the WWE, but that would need to be something that was started, that was established, that was pushed, and that was given time and tenure to develop as Heyman has been with Reigns or as Heyman once was with Punk. Or what, there wouldn't be this instant. I, I know a lot of the people that are really devoted fans either of ours or just a hardcore wrestling aficionados um you know was oh god you know if Heyman within Cornette showed him him with a racket but a lot of those people in the building just right and concentrated in that one place would be dumbfounded because they wouldn't remember that we jousted with each other and I hoisted him on his own petard 30 years ago 30 oh shit 30 fucking five um, so that's the thing is that, and I'm too old for that. I'm not going to go somewhere that I would need to, or be asked to, and rightfully so establish who the fuck I was, what my interaction with was the guy I was managing and blah, 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 and, and commit to the WWE does not need to just bring people in. Oh shit. It's him for one night. Unless it's some, it's one of their people that, oh shit, it's him, he's back. Not, oh shit, it's him from the internet. <laughs> and they just, that's, that's, Why, that's how Logan Paul got over. Well, but he, I mean, he's, he's younger than I am. He's willing to put the work in, right? That's the point I'm making. If I was younger and a uh, different situation, I would be more than happy to work with Punk, and I believe we would do some business, but there would be no reason for them to ask, nor would there be reason for me to accept to just go, oh, shit, he's here. Well, he was close enough to Louisville to drive, so a big pay-per-view shock. How are they going to follow up on this? Am I going to go to Raw every fucking week? Fuck. No, I'm st still debating with you how long I'm going to keep doing this fucking podcast. You can work ringside like Gary Hart. You don't have to take any bumps. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to breathe. No, the hard part is getting there and back. Uh, you know, if 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 I, if I could walk across the goddamn street into the arena, I might. You know, but no. Okay, let me present you with a different scenario. And it's not again. It's not like people are beating the goddamn door down here now. And I'm I'm explaining to you sensibly, logically, from a business standpoint, why it don't fucking work.
if WWE makes a deal with Warner Brothers Discovery and WWE Raw ends up on TBS, would you, along with CM Punk, host a best of TBS wrestling or the history of TBS wrestling show every week on the network? Airing old, old studio footage from Techwood Drive. Well, but uh, every week, but if uh, a show like that was to take place, there there could be numerous of those shows done and put in the can and then just wheeled out, right? That is correct. Well, then I'd do that, son of a bitch. Drive down to Atlanta in an enclosed environment, sit down and, wa- and talk with Punk about watching old wrestling and then come back home and get paid network money for it. I'll, I'll take that. There you go. And I think I contributed enough to this idea that I get executive producer credit on this project. So, uh, it'll well, be- well, at least I like this one better than the last one you were going to be executive producer of where you tried to kill me off and replace me. You didn't say no to that one for the record. I said no to being killed off. But no, it wasn't going to kill you off. It was if actual death happens. Well, can you're rooting for it now? If you, I'm not rooting man, for it. I don't. Means... Ha- I don't have a replacement ready. Uh, yeah. Back to this. Uh, what was this? Oh, this was managing but... Punk or doing something with Punk and WWE. But that's uh, and again, here's the point I was trying to make with that and the and the why I was saying there would have been a different impact in AEW and WWE for these reasons, and you would have to approach it in different ways because the AEW audience is more specialized, more tuned into the internet, more smart overall, which is why they're so much smaller than the WWE audience. And Tony didn't do anything to grow outside that bubble, but that kind of thing would, that would have been more well-received in that or, or, not well, it would have been more inflammatory in one way or another than it would in the, in the WWE. So it's obviously not going to happen there. And again, if I was younger in AEW with punk, if he had been, if he'd been involved in the start instead of a few of these other people, that might've been something I would have been attracted to also, but no, it was not going to happen in any case. Cause again, I'm old and I'm busy and I don't work with children and I don't keep it that way. I just have to point this out to you because someone posted it in the uh, Cult of Cornet Facebook group. The website Voices of Wrestling put up an article, apparently, what CM Punk took from AEW by someone named Jesse Collings. Okay, now he's being, he's being accused of shoplifting? Taking home uh, company fucking uh, paperclips? Office stationery? What? While some pundits would claim that Punk's firing exposed AEW as a minor league company unable to handle a true top star, the real damage that Punk did to AEW was done almost entirely before he was fired. Punk took away AEW's external innocence and optimism for a better wrestling future and replaced it with the traditional divisiveness and drama that has become all too familiar with wrestling fans. External innocence? By publicly declaring himself as an enemy of the elite. Is that like wearing a virginity condom? When do you hear this? By publicly declaring himself as an enemy of the elite, he exploited a neoconservative ideology that had existed since before the company started. Punk had become a proxy in the never-ending war, some pundits 
most notably Jim Cornette, had against the Young Bucks for doing too many flips and for ruining the wrestling business. <laughs> Punk, the company's biggest star, had become- Is this, is this, wait a minute, is this one of those AI articles? This can't be a human being. This has got to be some kind of artificial intelli- lack of intelligence. This is an example of the ninny fan who can't grasp reality who had the myth and dream of AEW crumble and they need someone to blame it on. And it was you. And then they found a bigger star and it became punk and they it was dream- punk and he's they- not even there anymore. And they're still blaming him for killing AEW. They dreamed of wrestling with external innocence. How about the fact that not liking the bucks is a neoconservative ideology. What is a neoconservative ideology? Because liberals would accept the bucks and conservatives would reject all the flips and killing the wrestling business as it's. No, I would, re- I would reject the, the assholes first and their assholes first. Ladies and gentlemen, the good news is this is a very, very small minority of the AEW fans, even who think this crazy, who act like this on Twitter. And quite frankly, this audience is significantly larger. And you, and you know it's and it's people like this that give the the lefties a bad name because just because they're on our side they're 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 mentally deficient uh they they speak up and they call attention to themselves and and the right wingers use that to say well look they're all nuts no just well, you got more nuts than we got assholes we just have to put up with these nuts you got you got them nuts. It always comes back to the same thing. The elite are just these innocent sweethearts who do nothing wrong and have never done anything wrong. And we should just all bow in their presence, give them flowers, get out of their way, and be happy that they graced us in the wrestling business with their presence. And some of us say that's completely fucking nuts. <sighs> these guys are mediocre, and they may not even be that anymore. If Dave Meltzer, as their press agent, did that for him, he should have been retained by, like, fucking Bill Cosby. I mean, how the fuck? It just, as as Uncle Dave's, you know, prose and poetry in, in praise of the buckaroos and their, you know, the rest of the Cucamonga kids led to this level of fervor. I know that the cracks have started and, and, People are seeing through him now, but this level of commitment, I mean, even even Ricky and Robert personally going from town to town and fucking a lot of these girls individually didn't inspire this much loyalty. <laughs> individually, you have to stress individually. Individually. Well, sometimes <laughs> in small, small and casual groups, but you know what I'm saying. Each person got individual attention. You think if Ricky Morton did that stuff now, people would be sending around photos of him with all the girls at the merch table saying, see, no men, no men in the photos. He's a danger to the locker room. No, they'd, they'd still be sending around Polaroids of Robert Gibson, probably, if they had uh, been involved. But anyway. Any final thoughts on just in general? Because, you know, very often when Dave Meltzer gets attacked for something on Twitter, or just responds to someone because he's trying to get some attention for it, he'll point to you and Norm Dooley. <laughs> you know, don't look at me. I'm not the one who started it. The first six-star match or the first five-star match was then, which he didn't even know about until you told him. <laughs> so it's a hard defense to have for raising the star rating system. But 
you hear a lot of people point to you. You were there kind of at the beginning of what we call the smart fan. A very, very, very select few of you got into the wrestling business and did well. Eddie Gilbert, Paul Heyman, various people, and of course you. You see what's happened now. There are still fans who, you know, may have evolved, obviously, as time goes by. They're not thinking exactly like you did in 1982. But it's a similar thread, a similar mindset today, and they appreciate the good stuff. And then there are fans who think that anything that's new, anything that's flashy, is best. And this is what everything should be. And if you reject that, you're the problem. If all of a sudden your favorite show changes format, accept it. If not, you're out of touch. But what does it seem like? I mean, we just talked about this Voices of Wrestling article. There were never hysterical smart fans like there are today, were there? No. The smart fans in in those days, uh, albeit, you know, so many fewer of them, were the ones they, they would roll their eyes at, you know, they knew why Bulldog Bob Brown was getting the push in Kansas City. And a lot of them rolled their eyes at, at, at Dusty because he, you know, when you saw him for a long time and you were a smart fan, you know, it, it, it did wear on you. And, and that's part of the difference in being a smart fan in those days and not being a regular fan that still holds true today. A lot of the regular fans like the guys that draw money that the smart fans are not enamored of. But nevertheless, the point is they weren't hysterical about you know, about any of this shit as far as... Throw Choshu out of wrestling! Yes, it, it's it's lunacy. They, the smart fans at that point in time had to apply themselves more, be luckier, be in the right place, you know, learn more on how to interact, et cetera, et cetera. It was harder, so, and you took care of it. But the thing is, the rating system which we've done essays on and talked about endlessly. And I'm not going to rehash all that except to say that it was a rib to begin with between me and Norman. And then Norman, a way of quantifying something for Norman to the people who got his results sheet, which was probably in the three dozen people range or whatever just so that he could kind of relay what he thought of the matches on the show. And Meltzer, who has the many similar characteristics of Tony Khan when it comes to numbers and output of words, either written on a page or spoken or whatever, many similar characteristics, took that and fucking ran with it and made something out of it to the point where people have debated about it ever since. But the, I've talked about the ratings as, you know, one star was, yeah, glad that's over. Two stars was kind of what we expected. Three stars was, wow, that was really good. And four stars was they tore the fucking house down. But we were still looking at it, not only from the reaction of the fans, but the reaction of us, because we were the fans too. We still weren't fully smart to the insides of the business, as I've explained. And I know that if guys had been trying moves and obviously fucking either cooperating and failing or even obviously cooperating and exhibiting them, 
that they would have been booed by the people and they wouldn't have been into it and they would have been tearing that house down. Those people, if you, you cannot grade or critique something as good when 30 or 40% of the shit that's tried looks fucking shitty or that there are obvious buzzkills or what the fuck did they do that for? Or can't tell who the baby faced, who the heel is, who are we supposed to cheer for? What the fuck is the issue? What's going on? Any of that. That would have all been, been um, a detriment to the rating the way that it was originally envisioned by us founders. Me and Norm. Good old weasel. The founders. <laughs> us founders. No, if they'd slipped off the top rope and taken three times to do the thing, I don't care if they goddamn cured cancer and exposed the invisible man in the rest of the match. They still fucked up. And the people in the stands would have been hooting at it. So that's that. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens, because I think there's a, and we'll move on after this, but there's a lot of fans who grew up reading The Observer who learned a lot about the business reading The Observer, and in a lot of ways, the way they thought about wrestling started to match Dave's. Because Dave put out a newsletter that every week everyone looked forward to getting in their mailbox. You hoped you didn't miss a day. And now we have fans who don't see The Observer the same way. You know, Dave isn't the person breaking the news anymore. Dave isn't the person in... I mean, he gets in the middle of the story. I can't say he's not in the middle of the story. Actually, that's part of the problem, maybe. He'll squirm in there one way or the other. But wrestling media, wrestling news, all these things have evolved. And now you're going to have the first group of people who start thinking about wrestling and grading wrestling, if we're going to look at it that way, but thinking about it in a different way. Because the Observer has started losing influence, and you're hearing more people question Dave's way of thinking about these matches, which again has been an evolving thing. Now it's, I hated it, but the room loved it. Five stars. <clears throat> but I think we're going to start seeing the first group of people very soon who think about wrestling in a very different way. And again, this show is a big audience and people will probably be surprised how many young listeners there are. I think people appreciate wrestling beyond just the way Dave does. Can we all just have something that makes a little sense? That's the question. Well, on that topic, Jim, before we get to anything else that may or may not make any sense, just a quick show announcement, and I've just been in touch with our fine advertising team here. Apparently, some listeners we heard from received programmatic ads in the show that were a bit concerning to them. They were, I guess, advertising things that would certainly not fall in the list of values that we here have at the show individually and together uh, as a show, and it was concerning to us to hear this. And I want to let the listeners know we've been looking into it, and all those ads are in the process of being removed. If any of them snuck in, some of them do because it's based on category, from what I understand. And we are right now in the midst of a process of review for any programmatic ads in the show. So for anyone who's been concerned about some of the ultra-political, ultra-extreme ads if you've had well any? no hold hold on here a second there cowboy no i i i wouldn't be concerned about ultra political ultra extreme views if they're the right ones 
But no, this was one of those anti-LGBTQ family council some hoo-ha that we were alerted to by one of the listeners on Twitter. And for just all the rest of us small-town bird lawyers, Brian, the programmatic ads, when we put the program out, we have a service that can put advertising in, which we get money for, but even though in some cases, several years ago, we were talking uh, here before we went on the air, we got approved some ads from like Acme Industry, and it turned out to be like a cover name of a company for pro-gun shit, and we had to hear that and sort that out and have that taken down. Uh, and sometimes the name of the company is innocuous, where you wouldn't think, and then boom, and they're inserted. We do not go individually through these and approve every single one, but we will certainly disprove of the ones that are not aligning with our values. And we do approve categories. And like I said, that's how sometimes someone could sneak in because they're miscategorized, uh, mis I guess would be the word. Yes. And that's the way they're, they're the categories. And then instead of categories, we got <laughs> we got out categoried. That's right. Well, we're we're nipping that shit in the bud. We're shutting that shit down, baby. Well, that's right. But that's the point. If anyone, uh, if there, if you ever hear anything in the show that isn't actually on the show, let us know if it's anything concerning, and we'll always make sure that we do something to take care of. And like I said, this is right now under review, and we're going through everything, and. It'll be taken care of instantly. Yeah, because we can't listen to everything because there is different stuff on YouTube than there is on the podcast feed. And I think potentially different ad insertions from some of these platforms um, from podcast platform to podcast platform. Is that not correct? I sound like I know what I'm talking about. That is correct. And, you know, if you hear ads in the show that aren't just the reads, like actual programmatic ads, they call them. We have some in the show, and to be honest, we have less than most shows just because we didn't want to ruin the listener experience. We have certain spots in the show we put them so that it's absolutely in the middle, in between segments, doesn't interrupt the flow of the show. Sometimes ads are inserted by actual podcast services or different uh, distribution platforms in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a word. That ain't us. That's never us. But there are different ways that ads get into these shows based on how you hear it. Damn them. Damn their eyes. But anyway, we're looking into all this stuff. But we can't listen to everything. That's what we tried it with Kippelman. We said, just listen to our podcast, the same one over and over on every platform it's available on. After four days with no sleep, they had to put him in one of those long sleeve jackets and put him in a rubber room at the Puzzle Factory. He began bashing his head against the side of the wall and muttering some kind of incoherent gibberish. Well, real quick, Jim, before we get off the topic of podcasts, one last-minute update here. Uh-oh. Uh, as Podcast One sits at $1.50 a share, and Live One, the parent company, at $1.13 a share, Colin Thompson has changed his Twitter bio. It is now a quote, The rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. ha ha ha! So little Mr. Arrogant, uh, who, by the way, is behind a locked Twitter account. So the rumors of his death have been greatly exaggerated, but his well, locked no, account... Colin, Colin, no! They're... Those weren't rumors. 
Those were spoilers. Yeah, no, those weren't rumors. Those were prayers. <sighs> well, there it is. The piece of shit Colin Thompson update here. But uh, Jim, there's so much uh, to talk about, and we've already talked about so much. So why don't really? we? Why don't we talk about something to eat? Well, you know, here's the thing. I'll tell you what. I'm glad before we get into the wrestling portion of the program any more than we already have, we got to get into this because I want to give an update on little Harley Quinn here at the holidays. Everybody knows she got sick this past summer and had that lepto infection and lost weight and wouldn't eat. She had to be on the IV antibiotics and we nursed her back to health. She's still on a variety of medications, but in the last month or so, she's really you know, come back like 80% of her energy and most of her old personality. She just wouldn't eat right, right? Well, then something happened last week that's turned everything around, and now she's our little Christmas miracle puppy, and she's eating like crazy. You can't stop her, and she's gaining weight again, and she's gotten much more energy now because she has, you know, nutrition in her. And whereas before, she didn't like any of her dog food she'd ever liked and any of the treats that she'd ever liked she had to be coaxed to eat but now she plows right in and brad it's all because of our friends at omaha steaks what and i'll tell you how this happened yeah please because i was out there last week when the when the brand new package from omaha steaks came and i was putting everything away in the in the freezer and I wanted to make sure that I had the bacon-wrapped filet mignons, the butcher's cut, right there in their usual place of honor right on top. So I was stacking the other stuff at Bloomabo with the lid up. And up the drive came the UPS guy, right? And, ah, shit. And so I took the package and I exchanged pleasantries with that fella. He's my regular fella now. You know, he's my regular fella. And when I brought the package and I carried it in and I opened the door, well, then Harley had to go out. And I didn't remember that while I'd closed the lid on the freezer, I had not put the box of the Omaha Steaks Butcher's Cut Filet Mignons, bacon wrapped, by the way, back in the freezer on top like I had meant to. I was not aware. I was uncognizant of this. And I didn't know this. <laughs> I think about three days. Now, it has been fairly cold weather, but when I suddenly looked at him sitting on top of the shelf there, I said, oh, shit. Shit on a shingle. And I opened them, and they had defrosted. Even though Stace said later on, said they were still kind of frozen in the middle, but that could have happened overnight because the day I left them out, it was probably in the upper 50s. So anyway, nevertheless, and now we have these Beautiful, mouth-watering, tender, juicy, butcher's cut, bacon-wrapped, Omaha steaks, filet mignons. But I'm scared that I have contaminated them with my own stupidity and, and negligence. And Stace said, well, let's make them for Harley. And I say, you know what? She might like that. Because, you know, the dogs have the different digestification system. And so Stace took them in there, and she grilled them up on the broiler in the brand-new oven. For Harley Quinn, and I'll have you know that as soon as we cut it up into pieces, because she does need she doesn't have opposable thumbs, so she does need her steak cut up for her. But when we put those tender, juicy, 
butcher's cut, bacon-wrapped Omaha steak filet mignons in front of that dog on her little food pad. She went to town. She didn't have to be coaxed. She didn't have to be hand-fed. She ate every single bite of those steaks that we could put down in front of her and licked the pad that they had laid upon. And that has kick-started her appetite. And, and she now is eating and playing and frisky. As I said, she's our little Christmas miracle. She's bouncing off the walls with energy. And she's eating with exuberance. And it's all thanks to our friends at OmahaSteaks.com. And I'll tell you what, folks. I can now give you a personal endorsement that Omaha Steaks Steaks, if a sick dog will eat these steaks, imagine how good they will taste to your family and friends who are all healthy, as far as you know. Right. None of this is recommended. None of these products are recommended for animals. They're recommended for humans where they are delicious. And well, see, this is one, one of those. This is not a selling point for the product in any way. This is one of those off-label applications because everybody knows you like to eat steak and/or mouth-watering burgers and gourmet jumbo plump franks or any of the other fine Omaha steak. Everybody knows that you you want you like to eat that, but not everybody knows that an off-label application is that if you've got a sick animal, Omaha steaks products will. We'll cure them and rejuvenate them. No, it won't. No, it won't. Stop saying any of this stuff that's false and not true. And ladies and gentlemen, please do not give any Omaha steak products to your animals. It's not for raw. human. It's for human consumption. And of course, you can consume it today. The fine hot dogs, the hamburgers. You know, you know what human consumption is? You know, they used to call tuberculosis consumption. Did you read? That's what Doc Holliday died of, the consumption. Well, he drank his ass off. Well, all I'm saying to you, Brian, is that if you want to feel better, don't you feel better when you eat the Omaha Steaks products? Oh, of course. I mean, I want some too. Well, I mean, I'm getting hungry know. right now. Yes. And then it's therapeutic, not just for, and we're all animals, I guess, in our own way. We're mammals. Mammals are animals. You are the human animal. And yes. I am the walrus. And so <laughs> if you want to feel better, go to omahasteaks.com right now and and get this food and eat it or give it to people that you want to feel better and they will eat it and feel better also and if there are some scraps left over for your poor little sick baby puppies then it'll make them feel better too potentially in my experience but nevertheless it's not going to cost anything i mean my god alpo is more expensive than omaha steaks right now with this deal 50% off site wide and when you use the promo code JCE at checkout, another $30 off your order on top of that. You could afford to feed this stuff to your goldfish seven days a week, and you wouldn't spend as much money as you spend with two or three Uber Eats dinners. Just cook it yourself the for the privacy of your own home. See, that's what I'm saying. See, you do the mathematics, it all works out. When you get 50% off and then $30 off a half, then you got a hundred percent chance of saving money if you feed this to your fish. Your, if you could throw it out in the yard and let the birds eat it, and it would still be cheaper than the Uber Eats and the Grubber Hubs and the rest and the and the spoke and the wheel. And and and, and, and I, I don't know how else to explain this mathematics to you. And it won't last long because they're going to run out of steaks. The whole city of Omaha or the State, well, Omaha is a city. I was going to the state of Omaha. 
The whole state of the steak business. The state of the spot. The state of the steak business <laughs> out there in Nebraska will be crashed by this sale. They won't have any cows as far as the eye can see. So order right now. Have it for New Year's. Eat beef for New Year's. OmahaSteaks.com. Use the promo code JCE at checkout. 50% off sidewide, and then with that promo code, you get an extra $30 off. And make your whole family happy, even our furry friends. Well, let's focus on our human animal friends. And of course, Omaha Steaks is delicious, and you can get some, maybe not today, but with shipping in a few days. What's that promo yes. code one more time? It Jim? depends on what time of day are you hearing this. That might have, if it's four o'clock in the morning, Eastern Elbow time, you might be out of luck. Uh, Promo code JCE is what that is. Once again, Omaha Steaks, fine, fine products. We love them here in the house. I'm going to be ordering some soon because I'm starving, but... Ruff. Jim, was that a dog? That was me. That was you. Was you sneezing? Or were you being I, a... was, I was getting excited. Ruff. Thinking about Omaha Steaks. Again, but... for human consumption, not for... Not specifically for your canine friends. Well, not specifically for any, I mean, you can spread these things around for a variety of applications. But speaking of spreading some things around, we don't want to spread misinformation, Brian, right? We do not want to do that here on the program. And you, a couple of weeks ago on one of these shows, said something about my Christmas poems and said, well, you ought to read those for Christmas. And I said, well, I guess I might. And then we never have. So this is the last opportunity we've got to make sure that we fulfill our word to the to the people out there, the cult of Cornette, should I read my Christmas poems? I believe this should be an annual show tradition for the last show of the year. Where I just sit there, can you imagine yourself next to a roaring fire with the stockings hung with care and all kinds of candy gobbledygooks in them and... And uh, I'm sitting here in an overstuffed easy chair reading my Christmas poems. The way Darlene Love was on Letterman every year singing Christmas, baby, please come home. This will be that annual tradition here on the drive-thru. Baby, please come home. Baby, please come home. Was it that tune? That wasn't it. That wasn't it. <clears throat> well, anyway, and I know a lot of people are saying, why in the world does Jim Cornette have a Christmas poem? Well, the answer is these were written quite some time back, and we've covered this period in my career on various programs before. You can find it on YouTube, but suffice it to say that Christmas of 1988, Crockett Promotions had just been sold to Turner Broadcasting System, and more importantly, the Midnight Express and I individually and a lot of the other wrestlers as a group had found out that they were not going to get all or part of the money from Crockett Promotions that they wrote on their contracts. And I've mentioned also that, my gosh, until we found out what was going to happen with TBS owning the thing, we thought, oh, shit, we're going to go on doing what we've been doing, but now the, the owner of the company has network cable television and plenty of money, and we won't have to worry about, you know, this... Jimmy Crockett's plane falling out of the sky because he can't afford the maintenance or whatever, right? We were optimistic, is what I'm trying to say. And along, because that happened on November 1st, right? That's when TBS officially took over. 
And uh, I believe about that same time, we got me and the Midnight Express, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane. We got our checks from Jimmy Crockett, the final settlement on our contracts to that point in time. And he owed us $66,000 and we got forty grand. That means he got us for $26,000, which, by the way, is somewhere in today's money close to seventy grand each, right? So we were a little cranky about that. And I was about ready to start doing my Christmas cards. Brian, you remember, I used to send it. Back then, you had everybody's home address, mailing address. There was no email, thank God. And people still sent Christmas cards, and it said, I, I sent out probably 150 or 200 of them at this time of the, the year back then. And so I wrote a little Christmas poem to send along with the Christmas card to the people that were in the business, or I gave it to the boys, you know, in Charlotte, etc. And that was the origination of this poetry here that we're about to hear. Does that kind of sum everything up for those who might be hearing about this for the very first time? I think so. And I will say, I still have all my old Christmas cards from you. They were something you look forward to because it wasn't just a card. It was always something funny. It was always something to pop you. Well, yes, because you can only send so many pictures of Jesus hanging on something or, you know, Christmas trees, and there needs to be some pizzazz to it. But anyway, that's why this year in 1988, or this time of year, Christmas 1988, I wrote, "'Twas the night before Christmas 1988." Do we have a drum roll here? Wait a minute. Hold on. What have I got? I just thought I wish I could do this like sounding like Vincent Price or Boris Karloff, but maybe the material will make up for it. Are you ready? Yeah. Like to hear it? Here it goes. Twas the night before Christmas and Jim Crockett was broke. All the creditors were stirring. They couldn't find the old bloke. The lawsuits were filed by the attorneys with care, but it was all for nothing. The money just wasn't there. The wrestlers' credit ratings were dying or dead while visions of big contracts danced in their heads. And Dusty in Texas, thinking that he was through, was plotting to kill the big pay-per-view. When then from the dressing room there arose such a clatter, they sent poor Johnny Weaver to see what was the matter. We want our money, said the warriors with a growl, and we're going to get it through fair means or foul. Better luck than we had, said the Express with disgust. The only thing left in his pocket is dust. Away to the box office, they all flew in a flash, thinking they could snatch the big handful of cash. But the gate had been killed by a dozen no-shows when half the talent decided to New York they should go. When what to our tear-filled eyes should appear but Jim Crockett himself smelling strongly of beer. With plane tickets in hand that were purchased so cheaply, we knew in a moment they were issued by Lindsay. And he wheezed, and he belched, and he called us by name. On Rotunda, on Steiner, on Rogers and Fulton, on Stinger, on Luger, on Ivan and Sullivan. Move on to Atlanta, things will be better. The travel's out of there, didn't you get my letter? As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, the sheep herders ran off before he bled them dry. But Crockett didn't care how many followed their tracks. Rhodes was in every angle, he could pick up the slack. And even though Flair was world heavyweight champ, he couldn't get a pin over a kid in summer camp. 
It seemed that the boys would never get their due, even though so many had threatened to sue, and contracts were settled for way less than half. Up in Greenwich, it seemed Grinch Vince would have the last laugh. When in came Ted Turner with money and power and rescued Jim Crockett at the very last hour. Offices were closed, incompetence fired, power plays won, and executives hired. And of the departed, many of you know who, TBS people said, what the hell did they do? We can find no reasons but nepotism and insanity for these folks to have jobs. That's what caused this calamity. And then the revolution was finally completed, and the talent felt at last they would be fairly treated. <laughs> Here we go, dramatic foreshadowing. Some problems remain to be smoothly worked out, but the boys will get paid, at least of that there's no doubt. But what of Jim Crockett, you ask one more time? Didn't he have to pay out his very last dime? Only if you don't happen to count the millions in his personal Swiss bank account. Then raising his finger, spilling scotch from his glass, and telling us all to kiss his rosy red ass, he was heard to exclaim as he snuck out of sight, 40 cents to all and to all, fuck you. Wow. <laughs> It's amazing listening to that now and listening to you read it now because you realize there's so much in it and it really is you as frustrated as ever. I mean, there are frustrations at Dusty's booking in there. Were the Road Warriors the first ones to openly complain about this? Because you were the first, they were the first team you mentioned in here, obviously. Um, well, I, they, they just, it fit the flow of the uh, the rhyming. But, uh, but no, they were... <sighs> They were very independent about their money. They had gotten the biggest contract that Crockett ever signed, even bigger than Luger's. They were at... When? Um, so that would have been in 87? 80, no, 86, I think. Whenever they came full-time, 250 dates at two grand a, day, a date apiece. So they each, that's, they each got $500,000 guaranteed, and Paul got 250. And they still got to go to Japan. And they still got to go to Japan when they had time in between those 200 because they had another 115 days. And then they started getting mad when TBS started. They booked that. That's, I think, one of the original things that led to their uh, departing like Billy Martin was when they wanted them to keep the same money but work more dates or they had ended up booking them on a bunch of dates and had to pay them more because they ran out of dates before they ran out of year or something. And then that's when Heard finally pissed them off bad enough that it ran them off. But there's other names that you sprinkle in there. Weaver, obviously Johnny Weaver, and he had a role in The Office. Lindsay. The travel agent. She later married J.J. Dillon. Oh, no bless shit. Her little, bless her little heart. It unfortunately did not last to present day. But So how old were you when you wrote this? Uh, Christmas of 88, uh, 27. So when you look back now on what you wrote when you were 27 and you were at the height of any frustrations you were going to have with a lot of these people, really, because you would kind of mellow with a lot of it as years went by, what do you think looking back? What do you remember? What do you think? What do you think you were too harsh on? What did you get right? What were you not firm enough about? Well, no, I, I wasn't harsh enough probably on, you know, the whole goddamn. I was trying to pop a lot of the boys in the locker room with uh, referencing Johnny Weaver. We all loved Johnny Weaver and, and, uh, you know, Flair loved this Murdoch liked it so, so much that the year he passed away, I reprinted them and sent them out in all my Christmas cards in his honor. 
Because he fucking hooted over there. But it was just to tickle the fucking boys, right? Because what's Jimmy Crockett going to do to us now? <laughs> he ain't the boss anymore, right? He, it, it, it's where it's, I'll make fun of him in my Christmas card. He got 26 grand of our money, right? That he had promised us. And, but what I didn't realize, we assumed, and when you make, uh, assume you make an ass out of you and me, that the only problem was that they couldn't, they didn't have the money, Crockett, to compete with Vince. We thought, oh, TBS, now we're great. We didn't realize they would they would fucking dismantle the whole goddamn thing and make everybody so miserable it would, they wouldn't be competitive for fucking eight years. So that's why I had to kind of update this one a couple years later with the 1990 version. How do you... After- Go ahead. Well, just before you get to 1990, how do you compare the optimism you had there for a Turner purchase of the company to the optimism that was there around the formation of AEW? What? It's it's really, unfortunately, it's not comparable because I think the optimism when Turner bought Crockett, we already had a... And an ongoing promotion with a full talent roster with a history that was actually successful and and was still being successful. At the, the problem had not ever been, as we've talked about, the wrestling product. The problem had been the decisions that they made and the things they spent money on. It, it, they, they still lost money, even though we were drawing at houses at the, at the arenas and people were watching the television. So the realistic expectation that we all had was that if this thing is well-financed, we can compete with Vince because we kind of already have been. But the, 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 you know, expectations around forming AEW was like for a lot of, not only the fans, but also for the boys, this is our only chance to ever get paid and make big money in this business and work for a billionaire. And holy shit, this is an all-or-nothing proposition. We didn't know at the time that TBS was going to mismanage the thing like they did, but it was an ongoing, successful, competitive product that just needed money and better management. It got the money and it got worse management. So this the the formation of AEW was like, oh my God, they're all clinging to a lifeboat. It was kind of, it was different. I think. Well, that was your 1988 poem. 1989 was a year that started out not so hot. And then by the end of it, you were on the booking committee. I don't know how hot that was at the end of 1989. But you were in a better position than you had been. So 1990 is a year later. You have now... Christmas 1990 is two months after you quit WCW. I am out of there. Not even a full two months. And actually, I wrote this at the beginning of December. Um, did I you write it. I'm Go sorry ahead. to interrupt you. Did you have your release yet or you did not have your release yet at that point? Uh, you know, I found it when I went through my files last Christmas time, when I had some time, I actually found the release. I don't know that I had it yet because we walked out, uh, what was it? The, the 30th of October. I wrote again. I wrote this sometime around Thanksgiving time because I had to get mail all my cards out. I, I, what, what was Jim Hurd going to do? Sue me for a fucking poem and a Christmas card? I'd already told him I'm going to do what the fuck I want, and you can either send me a release or you can sue me. 
And I said, you can put in the release. I'm not going to the WWF because I'm not going to the WWF. Otherwise, I'm, I'm going to do what I want. Respect my authority. And he just sent that he was glad to be out of that too. And he just sent me a release. Didn't say anything about the WWF. But nevertheless, the point is I was this time. I had a lot more time on my hands in 1989 on the booking committee. Even though I had some disgruntlements, I didn't have time to write my name down, much less anything else besides what we were doing. But now I've been off all month of fucking November, and I thought I ought to revamp this son of a bitch. And this one actually ended up a little bit longer because I went and I've tried to make it even flow more like the original poem, which by God, Twas the Night Before Christmas is a long fucking poem. Have you ever read the whole goddamn thing? No, I'm Jewish. Well, it doesn't mean you can't read a goddamn book. I'm not going out of my way to read The Night Before Christmas. Well, I did, because it's all, you know, with the Charles Dickens shit and all that stuff. It's in the classics. Dickens But it's a long poem. Yes. Dickens Schmickens, who'd he ever beat? All right. The Grinch That Stole Wrestling, 1990. Twas the night before Christmas, two years after the bye, and the state of pro wrestling would bring a tear to your eye. We're changing the scripts, the New York Times quote had read. All the secrets were out, and pro wrestling was dead. All the grandiose visions of light's glory and fame, of million-dollar pro wrestling achieving national acclaim, had been supplanted instead by what the corporate world had borne, a farce of pro wrestling. Deserving only of scorn. Oh, at first they had tried, they had tried very hard, but they hired a VP who had little regard for the business to which so many others were committed. He knew not the first thing, but he would never admit it. When suddenly from the office there was such a big fight, they sent James E. Barnett to help out if he might. He returned with pale face and a trembling hand, yet another of our bookers has been promptly canned. We'll depend on the champ, the few faithful did think. Ric Flair has saved many from a sea of red ink. Away to Charlotte they went with anticipation, knowing Flair could light fires under the whole wrestling nation. But the brains in Atlanta had closed the mine of gold. Who wants to see Flair? He's ten years too old. Then what strange sight did our shocked eyes meet? But Jim heard himself, his face red as a beet. With contract in hands given out to unknowns, we knew in a moment all our hope had just flown. And he ranted and raged, and he called out these names. On Funk, on Steamboat, on Warriors and Flair, on Midnight, on Cornette. Get the hell out of there! You must step aside for these faces that are new. We'll draw 20 million with this musclehead stew. The Clash ratings proved, believe you me, we can sell this green talent if the show is for free. As rain clouds dry up in the hot desert sky, the attendances dwindled, ratings began to die. TBS didn't sit still, no, they planned their attack. No blood, no violence, that'll get these crowds back. And even though Watts was a phone call away, they couldn't have that. Why, he'd get in the way. Because after all, as part of his deal, he'd want the fans to think wrestling matches are real. So into their skulls another notion did fly. We'll make sillier shows that all the kids will buy. Hence action the fans continued to crave. Up north it seemed Vince had dug a similar grave. 
When that cranky old herd found a foolproof new plan, he hired Moldy Oldie, wrestling's grumpy old man. Morale dropped lower, old cronies were brought in. Even with an old hand, it seemed no one could win. Whatever knack had been had way back when, by only for booking had left him by then. The best to be done by that sarcastic old rat was a heel who pulled rabbits out of his scorpion hat. Anybody want to draw? Chip Burnham's trademark line was reduced to, here's 20 and a pitiful whine. The ship sank slowly with all hands on board while Nero heard fiddled and Petrick looked bored. The potential of the venture slipped away like sand, butchered by businessmen who couldn't find their ass with both hands. And then the murder was finished at last of this business which boomed in the not-distant past. Every fan knew the words kayfabe, mark, and more. A few blamed the sheets, but promoters told millions more. But what of Jim Hurd, you ask with a shout? Couldn't Petrick or Turner force the old Grinch on out? Sad to say the world of corporate affairs seems to guarantee that he'll always be there. So raising his fist, cursing under his breath, and condemning Dave Meltzer to a horrible death, he was heard to exclaim as he flew to St. Louis, I should have stuck with pizza. Wrestling, ah, fooey. Well, there you go. Did you send one to Herd? Oh, he heard about it. <laughs> he, uh, there are he several people in that it. offices I know you sent it to, but did he get one? Yeah, well, they, they there was a few people that made sure that he saw all these things. As a matter of when I sent Jim Heard the wreath of black flowers, <laughs> dead roses, uh, and with the card that said, our deepest sympathies on the death of your wrestling promotion, that was when I was running Smoky Mountain in Knoxville, and he ran a show in the Omni that drew less than 1,000 people, and while I was drawing better than 1,000 people in a Knoxville Civic Coliseum. And so I sent him a, a wreath of black dead roses and he with that card and he picked it up and carried it down and put it on Jim Ross's desk and Jim Ross came in and saw what the fuck and saw the card and saw it wasn't to him and he picked it up and carried it back to fucking Herd's desk and set it on his desk anyway that was Christmas I was a jolly old fellow back then or a jolly young fellow I guess I had jolliness in me. How much do you think the people that can't stand you hate the fact that you're clever? Oh, it probably... I heard couldn't stand you, and then it's like, God damn it, he's got another zinger. There he is again. Yeah, it, you know, it's, God damn it. It's, it's, it's even more satisfactory that I can not only belittle these people, but in ways that they must deep down appreciate. Do you ever feel the need, or have you since then, to write more poetry? Uh, I've written a few poems, but they all mention Nantucket. Ah. Yeah, I haven't... haven't so you stole Lanny's material, I see. Well, a little bit, and then also the the suit of armor. I'd like to have that standing in the corner of the office here. But I'm, I may do a bit more poetry uh, if it comes. I need more spare time to yeah. sit by uh, Cornet Creek and reflect under the oak tree. You know, they say that Lanny Poffo wearing the suit of armor is what made it even more impressive when he blew himself. Well, that's how he hurt his ribs that time. Had to take some time off. Those things are not hinged in the middle. Jim, on the topic of blowing oneself, 
AEW? Why don't we talk about AEW Dynamite this past week, or last night as we are recording, the 20th of December. We're going to do it here on the drive-thru, this being the last show of, uh, the last new show, full show of the year. Well, we are, and I'm trying to find, here it is, right here. I got the, I got the pad, or the notes right here, 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 right next to my heart, heart, heart. You're not a string bean fan, are you? I'm not a hee-haw fan, just and for no, if no other reason, I haven't seen too much of it, but I know the story of String Bean. It's a crazy story. Well, it's I didn't mean to delve into goddamn homicide and well, as soon as you murder, bring it up, I just you know, where's your mind gonna go? You bring up String Bean, you bring up well, his saying, and then the, he got all murdered. The, all the much uh, the great entertainment, the many laughs and and good times that he gave people through his career on radio and television until he was savagely slaughtered in his own home along with his wife by robbers looking for cash that wasn't there. But now let's talk about AEW. Jeez, on that note, let's uh, let's go to Dynamite. On December the 20th, and they opened right up, boy, with another one of these tournament matches, and they hopped right into the entrances, and they got the bell rang Three minutes into the show, you got to give them credit for that. They don't waste time. This is not the WWE. Over there, they have huge box office stars that come to the ring instead of fucking your just regular old mope-faced fucking fella. But it takes them 12 to 15 minutes to do it, as we know. Here, they're, they're right in there. And it, it was Swerve, Strickland, and Rush. It was... Two more heels, but at least Swerve is so popular, he's more popular than most all the baby faces that it had a baby face versus heel dynamic. But we ought to look at who's in this tournament. If you can get any of that information, did he does he have like fucking two baby faces and ten heels in this whole goddamn thing? Every match is a heel versus heel match. Or a baby face versus baby face match, depending on how you see the two ambiguous wrestlers. Well, I'm not talking about their sexual preferences. There's no reason to bring amb ambiguousness that into this. Had nothing to do with sexual preferences. Ambiguity in terms of I thought what side they're on. If you were ambiguous, you were only in favor of the the bigger organs. I don't think right? that's, I don't think that's how it works. Maybe you remember the ambiguously gay duo from Saturday Night Live, and that's making you associate the word ambiguous necessarily with I, I, sexuality. I don't know. Did you like those superheroes? Well, no, I just, I thought it was talking. Well, never, nevertheless. Um, but Swerve so, is a heel and the face. And I think you could say the same for No, Roosh he's not. He's a baby group. face because the people cheer him. He just does heel things, which confuses the issue. But you're not a heel if the people cheer you. That's the problem with the whole company. The heels are more popular than the baby faces because at least the heels get to do phony shit that looks cool. Like breaking cinder blocks over people's fucking flesh and blood skulls or invading the 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 little baby carriage or whatever the fuck is going on around here that at least entertains these people because everybody's so boring and interchangeable otherwise. But nevertheless, they had another fucking match. And that's what they have. They have another fucking match. Rush is another guy who does wrestling moves well and has shitty matches that make no sense. And Swerve, as we've seen, it varies with the opponent, but at least he has personality. 
And they did the modern match with the dives and the flips and the moves back and forth. And they fought on the floor for quite a while. And nobody worked like a babyface. Nobody worked like a heel. They just did shit. And that gets old really quick. But they kept on. Anyway, Rush was selling his leg to the point where he would try to walk across the ring and his leg would go out on him and he'd almost collapse. And a couple seconds later, he's doing goddamn handsprings or whatever. And then Rush gave Swerve that trapped arm pile driver that remember a week or two ago, Moxley, he tried to give it to Moxley and Moxley said, fuck you and kicked his legs out and sandbagged him. It did stop, drop and roll. Well, yeah, and the reason why apparently is because Swerve went for this and Rush dropped him sideways and half lost him on the way down. And I'm not sideways, neck sideways. This guy is a complete idiot, the more I see of him. And then Swerve gave Rush a 450 splash off the top and covered him, and Rush kicked out at one and bolted bolt upright as mama Cornette used to say to his feet and beat swerve up to to his feet i'm like danny spivey beat up motherfuckers ass for shit like that and they just they worked it in apparently as an agreed upon part of the fucking presentation here and suddenly five swerve face planted him hit a brain buster got a two count kicked him in the head went to the top took about 15 seconds where the guy had to sit there dumbfounded, then did the double stomp and covered him one, two, three. So after all that, 20 minutes in, he just beat him flat. Not saying that he shouldn't have beat him, but, uh, you know, who does these finishes? Anyway, they just do shit till they run out of shit to do. What were your thoughts on this contest there, my fellow Brian? Uh, I'm the only Brian here. I'm not your fellow Brian. You are not a Brian. But as the lone Brian Well, you're my here, good fellow. Yes. Yes, my well, my good fellow Brian. I put a comma in there, in but he didn't hear. All right. Well, my good fellow Jim. As a Jim, I think this match was uh, it was all right. You know, I'm not into the and too many of the matches. I mean, shouldn't say not into it. It needs to be something more than a tournament match where I think I know who's going to win to get me into the back and forth match. I did think Roosh did a good job of selling until he jumped up, like you said, after the move. <laughs> I nothing. He hulked up in the way that fans used to hate Hulk Hogan doing it. He did it just yes. in less time. Just and, in it, a but, and there was another part where he's flipping everybody the double bird. And when it, when you talk about it, he was selling, he was one minute he's selling his leg like it's goddamn the end of the world, and the next minute they're doing he's normal until he needs to sell it again. I do, yeah. Until the referee whispered, "Moxley's selling his leg tonight. Stop! Stop!" <laughs> But, um, you know, Swerve is super over. I think the bigger story here is the reaction Swerve got coming out there, the reaction Nana got coming out yeah. there. And, and by the end of the show, they're going to fuck that up, too. Well, he's super over, and he has, uh, I have to get the points pulled up here. I think he has nine points. Well, that's that's the thing. Basically, they they come down in this program. Where have I got this written down here? In unintelligible fucking... Basically, they created a situation where by the end of the show, and we'll get there, that if Moxley either beat Jay White or drew with Jay White, then we would get Swerve versus Moxley as the final match, where then 
that'd be great. Then Swerve could put him, or Moxley could put Swerve over, do the right thing for business. Swerve would win the fucking thing, and it might stand a chance of getting Swerve over. But if Jay White wins over Moxley later on tonight, then it's a three-way final because they're all tied with points, which is horseshit because now you know the finish because Tony Khan is going to fuck the final up that might get Swerve over by beating Moxley to have some Fakakta three-way where nobody gets over and it's just a meaningless mark match. So we knew automatically after this first thing, what the fuck was, was going to go on later on, didn't we? Couldn't everybody call it then? I think we knew, based on them showing us and telling us that stipulation right away, what it was going to happen. I think Kingston's going to win this thing. I think they're going to do something sneaky, like have Kingston come back at the points. It's not possible. And the big dramatic moment where he goes over in the tournament final. How is that It is happen? possible. Eddie Kingston right now has six points with one match to go. Also in the Blue League, what? with six points, is Brody King and Claudio. With nine points is Andrade and Danielson. Danielson's wrestling Claudio. So if Claudio beats Danielson, Danielson stays at nine, Claudio gets nine. Brody King is wrestling Garcia, who has zero points, Daniel Garcia. Oh my God, my so he beats him, he gets nine points. And then if Eddie, who's he wrestling here? If Eddie beats Andrade El Idolo, he would have nine, and Andrade would stay at nine. You'd have four people at nine. Maybe we get a four-way here. <sighs> And a three-way in the Golden. What a great tournament this has been, ladies and gentlemen. Look at here. Hold on. Let me put something up closer to my head. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not even funny. Don't do that. Don't do <laughs> So then, I'm looking we'll talk at, more about I'm looking, the tournament I'm, later on. I'm looking at the fucking point system here, too. Didn't they also have, like, you would get, like, one point if you won by something else? No one has anything but zero or three. Or multiples of three, yeah. Yeah, everything's just a zero and a three everywhere. So, uh, Chris Jericho made a heartfelt speech about his brother in arms, his 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 partner Kenny Olivier. He Jericho was very humble here and sympathetic and concerned. And I've said it a million times. Sincerity is the key. When you learn to fake that, you've got it made. And it looked like behind his eyes, he was saying, oh, thank God I got that putz off my back. Now I can go suck somebody's charisma that's over. But the Golden Jets will reform someday. After Kenny is finished, he says, uh, defeating his newest opponent, Diverticulitis. What did you think about the uh, sincerity or veracity or lack thereof of this statement from Jay? Wasn't it so nice that it couldn't be that you, you just couldn't buy it. It was too nice. No, I disagree with you. I think this is the best acting Jericho's ever done. I, I thought he did a great job here with this. Of acting? Well, yeah, I thought he did a great job. The fans got quiet and listened and applauded respectfully at the right times. That means Jericho got the right reaction. And I guess... Did he mean it? I guess in the week since Kenny got injured, Tony didn't find a different thing to have Jericho do, so this was the best solution. <laughs> Just go out there and give us, in the back, give a speech. When did he record that? Was it that day and he just wasn't on Dynamite? Or did he record that speech? No, he was reacting to the crowd, wasn't he? It must have been there. Yes, he had to, he, he just, 
There was no need for him to go out, walk all that way out to the ring and be seen by the live crowd. And that way also, you know, he could get to the parking lot quicker. You know what the wrestlers call AEW? I'm waiting. Hey, free hotel room. <laughs> and, or in, Well, in his case, hopefully they get him a suite. A suite of rooms with soundproof walls. He tends to... <laughs> sometimes he has issues with his neighboring's surrounding... Uh, yeah, why anyway. You, why don't you do some of those skits you like? You can go to Kenny's bedside and sing to him. God, does he want to kill him? <laughs> Lord. Anyway, then we came to another tournament match, and I watched this one, and you knew I would, because it was Mark Briscoe against Jay Lethal. Neither one of these guys have a fucking point at this point. They are completely winless. They can't mathematically win the tournament but they're going to go out there and have a fucking match. And by the way, they had their first transmission issue, I believe at this point, I think it was the first one that I noticed right at the start of this match, a couple or three places in the course of the program, the audio and video went to black, but the, the bugs were still on the screen. The TBS bug and the AEW bug that was coming from TBS's transmission. So the problem with the program going out was between the point of origin, the live event, and their transmission to to TBS. And the announcers didn't say anything about it. It wasn't part of the devil thing. They just went black and silent for 15 seconds at a time. Yeah, that's the problem. The bug's still being there. My first thought was, oh, the devil's at it again. And then, oh, the House of Black's at it again. And the fans are as silent as they are every time they turn out the lights when the House of Black come out. <laughs> no, the show just more weird AEW production issues. That yeah, several either, times. they got a crimp in the wire. The, the cable was, somebody stepped on the cable. But anyway, um, Mark Briscoe and Jay Lethal, let me just... Go on a soapbox for a second. I understand Jay Lethal, when we're comparing about who should win this tournament or who, you know, is featured in the tournament, Lethal is a superior worker than Swerve Strickland because he's got more experience and he's, he's a, a, a better logical worker. And both of them can talk. But I can see using swerve pushing swerve ahead because he doesn't have the baggage of being booked rotten and used underneath in tna like jay does and he hasn't been booked as badly and as rotten in aew as jay lethal has right i so i can see that and i'm not trying to just say oh jay lethal ought to be the the winner i personally believe swerve has more of a star he seems more like a star than Jay Lethal was. And they, well, he's he's newer and he's fresher and and you know poor Jay, he just he never, you know, got the opportunities that he should have at the big company. But nevertheless, but can you explain to me why fucking Rush is in any way being pushed ahead of a unique talent like Mark Briscoe, who is so far superior to Rush in every aspect of the business? It's not even a, ca a contest in any category. It's just a criminal waste. And I can think of another couple people in the fucking tournament that instead of Mark Briscoe, this could have been a vehicle for Mark Briscoe. 
if they hadn't dropped the ball so bad and fucking botched him. The people like him. They want to like him more. They wanted to like him even more than that. And he's better at everything. He's got a personality and a gimmick and he can work and he can talk. And he's got appeal. And the, and Jay White? Jay fucking White put half the effort into Mark Briscoe they put into that fucking bowl of oatmeal. Jesus Christ. So anyway, I watched this match. I'll give a few high points. It, for once on this program, looked like two guys struggling for something instead of just performing together and not bothering to hide it. They wrestled a little because they know how, and they slowed it down at the at the beginning so that they could establish who the babyface and heel was. When they traded chops, it was hard, and without standing there and pointing at their chest for the other guy to do it, the other guy would take over. They still did some modern shit with Mark doing the Cactus Jack elbow off the apron of the floor and blah, blah, blah. But they looked like grown men and athletes doing shit, not in cooperation with, but in struggle with the other guy. And in it, and then they did the flips too. Mark did the drop kick through the ropes and then brought the chair in, set the chair up and jumped off it and cannonballed over the top rope and leveled fucking lethal and got a big pop and then jumps up and grabs the hat off the fan in the front row and wears it and makes his face because that works for Mark Briscoe because he's a world-class gimmick and they love that. And then they got some two counts, including the this is awesome chance for wrestling moves that weren't dangerous but made sense and then finally mark hit the j driller in honor of his brother jay one two three and the fans jumped up and gave him a standing ovation it was the best match so far in the tournament with two guys that were completely winless and had been booked like jobbers and it got a better reaction than most of the matches in the tournament. And with no danger to anybody more than is necessary in this job. And without being looking stupid, looking fake, or looking silly. And this was the two guys that couldn't possibly... And now, Jay officially finishes the tournament with... <clears throat> fuck. Idiots. What'd you think? It was all right. I didn't pay that much attention. Well, give me time to swallow then. I mean, why should I? I mean, you knew Jay Lethal wasn't going to win, and you figured Mark Briscoe was going to win. You know, they needed someone to lose every match. They picked Jay Lethal. You kind of knew it based on who was in here and who were his favorites and who gets pushed. And Jay Lethal shouldn't based on how he's been booked. So, wasn't a surprise, but you put this on the show and it goes, it's a long competitive match. I'm sure it was great. But when you treat guys like jobbers on your show, yeah, I don't want to see Battle of the Jobbers. And and it's they've got so many other people on the roster that deserve to be jobbers that are being pushed ahead of these guys that could produce. I don't. Uh, oh my god! Like the Mark Briscoe thing, unless he requested, I please, I don't want to be pushed the way some people want me to be pushed. I I don't I don't think he asked that. I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and bet the farm that he did not ask that. 
But Mark Briscoe, has, there's been multiple missed opportunities. And I think someone like Jay Lethal and someone like Mark Briscoe, it's happened so often now, they've now been pigeonholed into where they're going to be. And I can't see them past that point. Jay Lethal did not have Jeff Jarrett and the whole clown show out there. But the damage has been done. Damage has been done already. The You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, as they say. And all right, speaking of... I don't know, something to get the bad taste out of my mouth. Can you explain more succinctly than I can how the fuck that they managed to put Samoa Joe and MJF in the ring together to do a promo, the two best promos in the company, and it was really bad and really long? You thought it was really bad? I The whole... I mean, every... They're doing a good job with total caca. I don't want to confuse people who can speak well and impart bad material in as verbose a way as possible with, what did you like about this? First of all, in general, just based on what you just said, I agree with the issues with the booking. And I think Joe and MJF, I like the dynamic. I like the interplay. The issue is the booking. The issue is the story. Them as like a weird combination, I like. The idea that I'm wrestling you, so I'm going to be your bodyguard until I wrestle you, not so much. The idea that the lights go out and the devil's friends are there, and this time, it wasn't just four of them. There were just There's endless, 16 of them. Endless masked men. No one has stopped any of them. That's the bad shit. When they reveal who the black scorpion, I mean, I'm sorry, I mean the devil is, are we also going to get the names of all 16 henchmen? Is, is there going to be 16 guys come in with him? How do we never find out? Should Wardlow also become an MJF bodyguard? Because he wants to wrestle MJF and beat him. Should he defend him until he gets to that point? Well, he's still probably going to be the devil. But I thought MJF and Joe were good together. And I thought... MJF was good. I think in a lot of ways, MJF's getting back to the MJF on the mic that worked better, uh, being a bit more dickish as opposed yeah. to just an outright babyface. Uh -huh. But like I said, the problems with all of this, MJF and Joe themselves and their performances are not the problem. See, here's the, the, the it's context and it's the people also involved in what's going on. Samoa Joe's in the ring and the fans are already chanting Joe, 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 because the company's so fucked up that the most popular baby faces are the heels. But Samoa Joe, and again, the WWE missed the boat big time. I wish maybe that, maybe Joe's one that got caught in a transition over there. But he's a fantastic heel. He looks, sounds, appears, and comes off like he means business. And he's telling the story why was everyone assaulted by the devil? We saw it, but. Yeah, when uh, MJF was assaulted, he was found on the ground, and he called MJF out to answer questions. Are you the devil? And when MJF was coming out, I wrote, I get the idea that the devil thing is going to be MJF's shark jump if they're not real careful. However, this... But MJF wasn't happy that Joe's accusing him of being the devil. And MJF says that Joe was supposed to protect me and you know well, you're doing a shitty job right but <sighs> here's the thing 
MJF said some great things to Joe. He is getting more heelish or prickish or you know, whatever that in that respect, but Joe's the wrong guy to be talking to in that fashion for that long while Joe just has to stand there and smirk about it for one thing. Secondly, when MJF says, well, the goons, they didn't lay a finger on you either, Joe, so I don't like you and I don't trust you, so why wait till December 30th for me to end your world? And he starts taking off all of his shit, and Joe's still standing. Why did MJF get that mad that quick? He goes from zero to 60. Remember, he's done that a lot. When he's trying real hard to get something over, he all of a sudden, he got real mad real quick. And then as there, Joe is unfazed by all of this until MJF shoves him. And then Joe gets pissed and gets up in his face. But then suddenly there, as you mentioned, comes the endless parade of goons. And Joe shoves MJF out of the way because he sees him coming from behind. The first four or six or eight, I think it was about six or eight, they hit the ring and Joe and MJF just chuck them back out on the floor and they all lay on the floor immobile. They get an aerial shot. So you can see that they've, they've been thrown to the floor out of the ring and they're goddamn, they're dead. And then four more come over the rail and surround the ring. And then here comes maybe another four or whatever. And they're all surrounding the ring while the other ones are still laying there immobile. And then the lights go out. This is what I'm saying. You're, you've got a, a great heel that is popular because the other baby faces are fucking bland and he's a kick ass, but he's being talked to by this guy that really physically, he should be fucking respecting him a bit more. He's being talked to like a goddamn piss ant. But then suddenly this fake and phony and ridiculous angle takes over all the goddamn spotlight and oxygen. And then when the lights go out and the devil comes up on the screen and the words then flash up, where can you go? Who do you trust? And there's a challenge next week for an ROH tag team title match. We saw this before. And... MJF accepted and Joe was upset about it. And then MJF got laid out and Joe fought off goons. Now they've done the same fucking thing. And when the lights come on, the goons are gone. The fans are silent. If not murmuring. And Joe accepts the challenge. And I wrote, this is so fucking bad. What the, they can't. You can't mean to tell me that they wouldn't be better off promoting a singles world title match between Samoa Joe and MJF instead of this goddamn caca. Can you? Well, I can certainly tell you that there's no reason to bring ROH back into this. We need to admit it. It's sad, but ROH is dead. They're gone. It's just another belt on this show, and it's another taping where Tony can pretend he's a booker. But here we are again, MJF and Samoa Joe. It's like one step forward, two or three steps back. They have their match coming up at the pay-per-view. Again, I said it the other day, I don't think this devil thing is anywhere near done, which is scary. They probably still got to find one. I, I, would hope th- I would hope they have that figured out 
And worst case scenario, it could be Tony. <laughs> but I think MJ, I think MJF's work itself has been better the last few weeks. And I actually think I got sick of him and Adam Cole. And I know a lot of people loved it. But I like him and Joe together. Well, we're not done with MJF now, though, in the program. There's going to be more later on. And you still feel the same way? I thought that was an all right segment that went on for a while. See, the problem is a lot of these these things are good, but they're good in like 90 second increments. Unfortunately, they go on for good when you fuck the love of your life and you come in 90 second increments. Yes. And then you keep (laughs) fucking for another 25 minutes and it's, Oh my God. Now it's like, please give me oxygen. Well, do you do that? I, I don't do that, but, uh, you know, they say love comes in spurts. What does AEW come in? Well, it comes in bits and pieces. And oh, the next match was the... And folks, we don't have the ratings yet. This was just last night. It's still early in the day after, and we're we're cranking this stuff out for the holidays. So we don't have the ratings, but we predict that right here is where a cataclysm happened of epic proportions to send the Nielsen families into a tailspin. It was a match where the winner gets a title shot against Tony Storm with Soraya versus Riho. Brian, how much did they sign the former page for for her to be the star of the women's division who came in with incredible fanfare, if not trumpets and drum beats and I don't know what, cowbell, whatever else. And the, they built a group around her, and it was a game changer. And now she's on free television putting over Rio. Tony just set fire to the money. It's quicker. Well, to be fair, Tony gave her a lot of money, but he was also negotiating against WWE, who were offering nothing. Well... Speaking of offering nothing, I feel bad for Soraya, and I don't even like her. But here, this not only was ridiculous, it's a joke. It's a joke. I'm sorry, it's a joke. Riho is not a wrestler. She's a fucking special interest of Kenny's. And there's some mass hypnosis going on that everybody else in this company just tolerates this, but it's it's embarrassing. But now it's dangerous because what did Paige retire from the wrestling business from and was told that she could be potentially paralyzed or use the use of, lose the use of her extremities? What was that injury, Brian? Well, her name is Soraya now, but I believe that was a broken neck. Yeah, well, did you see the spot where she actually let this four foot nine, 89 pound mousy little thing give her a belly-to-belly overhead northern light suplex with a bridge and almost land her right on top of her head a la the ridge holland big e incident of about a year ago yeah i saw i watched this match twice <sighs> why why would you go for somebody that much smaller than you it's it doesn't even mathematically make sense that she can be turned properly or or taken over properly, and it, it, she almost put her right on her fucking head. The crowd ooed. It was so close; it was obvious without even 
Taz, who really saw what happened, almost having a shit fit in his voice. And then after she does that, Riho just pushed her with one hand and Soraya rolled a turn toward the corner to get into the right spot and then put her arms in between her legs, tucked herself, and stayed stock still, muttering a silent prayer without moving a muscle or even a hair as Riho went up to the top rope and gave her a double stomp off the top rope and then didn't cover her. Soraya then sits straight up, just does a sit-up, and scoots on her ass into position, obviously, for Riho to give her a running knee, and then Rio covers her one, two, three. So not only was it embarrassing to watch if you care about the wrestling industry, or embarrassing if you care about Soraya, but Soraya was embarrassed and was just going through the motions trying to get it over with without letting this fucking little goof hurt her. It was that obvious. Go back and watch before that double stomp off the top and watch her just roll there, move her hair out of her eyes and tuck and fucking brace. Good God. And then Riho beat up Tony Storm too. When she got in until Mariah May came and saved Tony, and Riho was left standing in the ring like she was Hacksaw Duggan with a two before, instead of fucking Riho in an ill fitting tutu. You watched it twice. What did I miss there? I did. I, uh, I really dig her style. Her lace dicky is always on point. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that she had ever been a sampler of dickies. The match was so bad, I had to watch it a second time just to see how bad it was. It was one of those things. Soraya's limited because of everything that's happened. Her biggest benefit, I guess, would be her personality. And you had her in there with Riho. And if you really stop and you can stop drinking the Kool-Aid and watch her, her stuff looks bad. It's the ultimate in a cooperative match because otherwise it doesn't exist. And her stuff just doesn't look good. It's the epitome of someone who can copy the moves they see on TV and kick out. Like I said before, if you can just get that shoulder up at two and a half, you're halfway to being on AEW TV. That's all it takes to get at least a three-star match. Just kick out a few times. Other than that, it's ridiculous. And I see other people say, well... Jim doesn't say this about... Yeah, Jim says it about everyone who's small. And some of them I disagree with. Because I think sometimes the right small person, it works. With Rio, it doesn't. She's ridiculous. And she's smaller than everyone there. And she gets a renewed push every couple of years. I don't know if this is where the ratings are going to die. It may die during Jay Lethal versus uh, Mark Briscoe because of how they've been used. No, it, I mean, it'll it'll go down there. But it'll drop off a cliff on this one because that was early enough in the program they could still think, well, we might see something. What? What is that? They put Rio at the 9 o'clock hour two weeks in a row. And she didn't do anything special last week at the 9 o'clock Oh, that's hour. I didn't even mention. That was the, this was also the 9 o'clock hour. Yeah. Because somebody is delusional, and, and Tony is too nice to not put up with it. I don't know how else to explain it. 
there I'm sure are a number of people in the locker room who realize full well and are insulted by the fact that Riho is on his television program, but they can't say so because of whichever EVPs and, and Tony himself who are convinced that this is something that's ever going to happen in this fucking country. I've been consistent going back to the beginning of AEW, so I'm going to say it again here. Other than the fact that WWE had one, which started because of the Divas, and then TNA started one, and obviously Japan's been doing their own thing, when AEW started, it was automatic, they need a women's division. Even though there weren't the talented, independent women out there for them to sign and bring in right away. And there were some fans that are just over the moon about anything about women's wrestling, and are very forgiving, and were really excited about this, and still think the problem with the women's division is that Tony's not featuring them enough. Oh, good lord. Tony should have never had a women's division. Tony should have said to Kenny and anyone else, I like women's wrestling. I'd like to support them however I can. It would benefit me not to have that division on my show. And it's getting worse and worse. WWE has the top flight women. Jamie Hayter is great, but she, we'll see if we ever see her again on this show. Yeah. But there's no reason for AEW to even Statlander, have a women's get, when, when she gets uh, Statlander, when she's well, she gets a match every once in a while, and then she's relegated to standing there next to these jack-off outlaw mud show goofs like Trent and Chuck and Festus. And working with Rehos. I mean, that's the other, if she was in and w- working with Rehos. Statlander was in WWE, whether it was in NXT or on the main roster. Again, with some exceptions, Liv Morgan's not one of the bigger... Acts, and I think Alexa Bliss, when she's there, is even smaller than her. She's probably the smallest and most ridiculous in terms of size. But she'll be working with Rhea Ripley's and Bianca Belair's and Charlotte's, people that are bigger. Of course, there's Sasha Banks's and Becky Lynch's and other people. But in AEW, look at who she's working Like, look at who is there. There are some people with talent that should be in NXT, like a Julia Hart, maybe even a Sky Blue. There are other people... That just aren't very good. I'm not going to even name them right now, but there are some Abaddon. women there. Abaddon. I'm not even thinking of Abaddon, but there are some women there that are just Abaddon, terrible. You know, when, you, when you go, when you're a kid and you get the Halloween candy and they put it in the pumpkin with the handle on it that everybody carried the Halloween candy in and then you leave it set out on the porch and you live in a warmer climate and after a couple of days you come back and you see the goddamn, those fucking marshmallow treats. They ain't looking so good anymore because that sun that was beating down on them on the porch, that's Abaddon. Well, that wasn't even my example. My point is, this women's division is horrible. The answer isn't, the answer to fix it isn't more of it. I'll just say that. <laughs> well, speaking of what we don't want to see any more of, did you, Tony Schiavone read a statement from Christian Cage. So uh, Cage and Edge weren't even on this program. And he, Tony just stood up on the stage and read a statement like, he, oh, I have to read this. And he started with comedy about what Christian said about his fucking Tony's yellow teeth. And I skipped the rest of it because I didn't give a shit, except we must mention that Tony is standing on the stage in front of a fucking Christmas tree <laughs> with no ornaments on it. it. I knew it. <laughs> there's no tinsel, there's no ornaments, there's no lights. It's just like a goddamn pine tree. It's like the tree was just growing there in the wild and they didn't want to disturb it when they built the stage. What the fuck was that about? Did someone bring a Christmas tree? No, we have a fern. I don't know what that was about. Um, Can we just stand Tony in front of the cedar? The whole thing was awful. Why is Shivani reading a statement from Christian Cage 
Because he didn't want to come to work that close to Christmas. Yeah, remember Adam Copeland a few weeks ago? He's going to be on this show every week. He's going to be there every week. Yeah, a few weeks later, he's not on TV. So I don't know about that. But Shivani's reactions to everything, this was hokey and bad, like most Christian Cage things seem to devolve into. Not good. And it followed that awful women's match. And then, I foreshadowed this earlier. MJF and Joe were arguing with each other in the back when MJF walked off on him. And he's walking down the hall, and he sees one of the goons, devil's goons, ski masks on the floor outside a locker room door. And he looks up, and on the locker room, it says the Mogul Embassy. They're still moguls, even though, what was that fat guy that said motherfucker? What was his name? Well, Rick Ross, a famous rapper. Okay, well, Rick Ross, he was the mogul. Well, he hadn't been seen since. We got Nana's embassy, but... Anyway, so the mask is laying there right outside the door, so MJF knocks on the door. Nana opens the door. MJF jacks Nana up against the wall. Swerve comes out, and MJF lets Nana go. And now things are already tense, right? So then MJF and and Swerve proceed to talk to each other in WWE-style smart-ass little zingers and backhanded statements back and forth for a long, long time. And the one thing you remember MJF may have said, he said, well, the thing is, there's levels to this shit, and you're not on mine. Where did we just hear that? They're stealing, MJF is stealing now from the WWE show? They just said that last week. And here's my bottom line on this. They finally got me to fast forward an MJF promo. I couldn't take this. It wouldn't stop. And it was too insincere and phony. And this is not... MJF is always witty and sharp and quick, and he doesn't mumble his words, and he delivers the zingers, but no, this whole thing is going down the fucking toilet, in my opinion. I'm sorry. It was intriguing, the idea of them... (laughs) interacting again we got a lot of the backstory while they spoke to each other with the camera right in front of them yes yes about how they used to ride up and down the road when they were in the indies together thinking they were gonna make it and blah 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 oh, god damn i've heard that before too i forgot his name was shane shane strickland they kept calling him there because that means it's a shoot so now we're supposed to think that this hood was just left in the hallway by a sloppy devil's associate i guess right in front of the mogul embassy room or it was a clue or a decoy. This is such a mystery. I'm glad the camera people are on it. Are the AEW fans big on board games? Is this a game of Clue? <laughs> I don't know. That's a very Did interesting Mr. Question. Mustard in the drawing room with a candlestick? Well, I don't know about Mr. Mustard or mean Mr. Mustard, but it went on for too long. And, you know, the problem is, I think, unfortunately, MJF's going to be there for a while. And I say unfortunate because. Much like I'm going to assume he heard from John Cena when he just saw him on the red carpet, or that he hears from any of these guys that he meets, I feel the same way. He should be in WWE. At this point, it's getting into that, like, you know, by the end, we glamorized Sting staying in WCW forever, but there was a period there where it was like, well, he should have done something. Yeah. 
And MJF is getting dragged down by this company right now. And he's a bigger star than anyone they have there. And they're overexposing him in the wrong ways. Yeah, trying to float all the other boats. He's putting holes in his hull. Aha! Ahoy, matey! See? I can top Tony and his pirate friend. Anyway, speaking of people who can't cut the mustard, Roderick Strong versus Commander. Seriously, Roddy, Roddy finally gets to win a match. And it's command, not till after Commander almost killed him. Did you see the flip splash off the top where he landed on him? His legs, yeah. Jesus Christ. So Roddy beats this goof. And then Renee Moxley Good gets in the ring and Roddy continues doing the goofy thing where he screams everybody's first name. Samoa! Renee! At his point, MJF is the devil. He's going to prove it. And I wrote, MJF is the devil, and this is the shits. Hey, Roddy, here's another, again, somebody you could have had on, on the card and deliver good matches and mean something in the middle, even in, and, and, and today, even today is what I'm trying to say. And instead, it's just goofiness, and it's wasted. I think you could argue that AEW has been ruined by the devil. Can we move along to the main event? Yes, please. They brought Jim Ross back for color in Oklahoma City, and he didn't even get an entrance on television. They came back from the break, and there's JR standing there at the desk. <laughs> fucking, and he sounded, his voice sounded good. Remember, he'd been sounding rough there with that regular traveling schedule. But to point it, they've got a pop that people will react to i'm not saying if it had been des moines give jr an entrance but it's oklahoma city but they had to get this fucking off-brand outlaw tournament match in jay white and john moxley the plumber and the sling blade or the switch blade or the gay blade or whatever the fuck he is zorro old zorro white did someone say blade there you go no wonder moxley wanted to work with him did you see that Moxley actually entered the arena from the hotel lobby built into the arena? He went, walked right past the elevators. I did. What the? We never usually see him from that early on in his uh, descent. Well, no, it's because whatever building they're in, the, lo the lobby of the hotel opens right into the arena. And that's, I guess, the only place they, they could bring him in and shoot him. But. So we were at the deal after all these other matches. If Moxley either drew with White or won, then we would get Swerve versus Moxley. And as I mentioned before, okay, even if the plumber's the worst wrestler in the world, a single match where somebody might stand a chance of getting over, especially if it's Swerve and they do the right thing and put him over. But if Jay White wins, it's a three-way final. And of course, then we knew from the start because Tony can't help himself from fucking the final up too and making it a three-way garbage match instead of doing anything that might be productive for business. So we knew the finish. And Jay White is another guy that is, as I mentioned, substandard to Mark Briscoe in every aspect of the wrestling profession. But they've pushed him to the fucking moon. And they rang the bell with 13 minutes left in the show and they were already talking about a run over. And to be honest, I zoned out on this because 
it's the plumber and Jay White and who gives a shit. But sure enough, the DVR froze up again. They're getting their overruns approved in advance, apparently. They're just not bothering to tell the cable systems. What happened for you on this? Oh, and by the way, spoiler, Jay White won, so we got we get a three-way. Right, which was the exact result you feared when they mentioned the stipulation for the first time earlier in the night. Right. I saw it live because we were recording today, so I got to see the finish. Jay White won. And my DVR also, when I went back to check, cut it off. Yeah. So. Like it's going to, if the cable companies don't know this is happening. This is now two weeks in a row that. I'm not not bothered by missing any of this. I'm just reporting the facts. I'm sorry. Go ahead. This is two weeks in a row that Tony has tweeted out in advance that he has five extra minutes for the broadcast. (laughs) Do you think it's been, uh, do you think it's beneficial to keep doing this or or should they try to just fit it into. A two-hour broadcast. Okay, well, making jokes about the overrun and nobody seeing it and the DVRs and the whole thing and Uncle Dave and nephew Brian having words about that, all that aside, it wasn't one of the arguments, well, if it's a real sport, real sports go over and we don't want to cut the matches short and they're 20-minute time. But the problem is if the goddamn tournament match is the main event every week and every week the tournament match goes five minutes over, isn't that the same thing as being preposterous because it always ends on time? It's ending at the same time, just not even in time. So isn't that the same problem, right? Yeah, and there's plenty of other stuff on the show to cut. Yeah, sometime in the match right before the show goes off the air and other times in the match goddamn six or seven minutes before the show goes off the air and replay or come back with comments or shoot something that might be interesting to keep people's attention. But then you've done the same thing and haven't breached your two-hour time commitment. Just a thought. Well, that was uh, AEW Dynamite, and uh, as we are currently recording at this very second, the ratings are not in, but I'm sure they were spectacular. I'm sure they were great! All right, well, that didn't end the way I thought it would, but we are in the future. That was time travel for those uh, keeping record. As was that. Sorry, it's harder and harder for me to get out of this glass pod that we have to do the traveling in. I apologize. Well, you know, are you going to tell the people why we traveled through time? We made it all that way, and we we had to take a break because we couldn't leave the people, the cult of Cornette, our faithful listeners, all the way through the holidays, we knew they wouldn't be merry. We knew they wouldn't be jolly. We knew they wouldn't be happy or sleepy or dopey or doc or any of the other ones. We knew, unless they knew the ratings for that fiasco we described here a short time ago. So we took a break and we hopped through time and now we have the the ratings. The ratings, my good sir. Once again, another big week of the Continental Classic, Jim. 
The ratings for AEW Dynamite. You know, by the way, somebody, who was it on Twitter that says a Continental Classic is something that it sounds like a hooker gives you behind a truck stop? Oh, see, I saw Breakfast on the road. I saw that one, too, at a diner. Yeah. Well, does it sound like a wrestling tournament? That is the question. AEW Dynamite on TBS, December 20th, 2023, on average, watched by 782,000 viewers. Ouch, ouch, ouch. So they proved us wrong. They finally, after all this time, Brian, proved us wrong because we've been saying 800 and what thousand. They have the the faithful there, the, the sick, the shut-in, the people that are chained to a table tied to a chair, cannot reach the remote, whatever the case. But now we've lost some of those. Was there a any type of a plague or a mass extinction incident in any of the AEW hotbeds over the past week? Yes, it's called the Continental Classic. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, we began, and I do not have the Big Bang Theory numbers here. If we uh, are able to get them, we will time travel once again, or we will not. We'll see. But quarter one, Jim. I think the Big Bang Theory is all about time travel. Why can't we have their fucking numbers on time? Well, these were compiled by WrestleNomics. Jim, quarter one, 8 to 8.15 p.m. Roosh versus Swerve Strickland with picture-in-picture. 964,000 viewers. Okay, this does not bode well for their average. Uh, as, as, as starting at that level and having an average in the sevens. But continue on, my boy. Quarter two, 8.15 to 8.30 p.m. The continuation of Roosh versus Swerve Strickland. A collision recap, an ad break, Chris Jericho's emotional backstage promo, and the start of Jay Lethal versus Mark Briscoe. 803,000 viewers. Oh, good Lord. So, 161,000 people at the start of it. Ah, oh, fuck. All right. Quarter three, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m. The continuation of Lethal versus Briscoe in the Continental Classic with picture-in-picture ads. The post-match and MJF's video 795,000 viewers. Well, at least they slowed it down to a crawl on the uh, viewer erosion and dropped another 8,000. Now that they got to almost stay there somewhat, don't they, to even get to this average? Well, we go to quarter four, 8.45 to 9 p.m., an ad break, the Wardlow video, the Samoa Joe MJF live promo and attack by the devil's many, many, many friends. The Orange uh, Cassidy, Chris Statlander, Rocky Romero, Trent Beretta backstage angle. Whatever that was. I, I think I zipped through that thinking it was a commercial for uterine repair. 779,000 viewers. 779,000. <laughs> well, that's another... That's another 16, 16. Why are you laughing? Because you hit me with it. I, I, these fucking viewers are, are falling. They're dropping like flies. This is not anything to, to laugh about and make merriment over. Well, we have the big nine o'clock hour, and we call it the big nine o'clock hour for a reason. Jim, the big nine o'clock hour, quarter five. Didn't nine, that involve Riho? Nine to nine fifteen p.m. Soraya versus Riho with picture in picture. 
you you have a little rattle there. Apparently, you you were not raised by a family of yodelers because you had a rattle in there. You didn't get the the clear. I'm under the weather a little. Right. Where are we? Post-match. Sound like, you sound like you're under the tune. Picture in picture with post-match and Tony Storm. Yes, post-match. That should be somebody's fucking name. Post-match? Let's get 227 pounds from Des Moines, Iowa. Here he is, folks. Post-match. Well, this quarter and the post-match in it did 782,000 viewers. Oh, good gravy. Good gravy, mama, mama. Good gravy. So they they gained 3,000 viewers at the top of the, the all-important 9 o'clock hour by featuring... Well, we then go to... Oh, little, little, Give me a Ricola. Can you do that? Ricola! We now go to quarter 6, 9.15 to 9.30 p.m. We're taking it real serious this week, folks. <laughs> An ad break, MJF. And well, that's going to put the butts in seats. MJ the ad break. MJF Samoa Joe backstage running into a mask on the floor and MJF and Swerve Strickland's backstage uh, talk, followed by Roderick Strong versus Commander, the start of it. 745,000 viewers. Oh, so there went 37,000. We are now... Two hundred and to two hundred nineteen thousand down from where they started. Well, we go to quarter seven, nine thirty to nine forty-five p.m. That red hot Roderick Strong versus Commander match with picture-in-picture ads and Roddy Strong's live promo, followed by an ad break. Seven hundred thousand viewers. Oh, good. Well, at least it's an even number. Um, so we're now down 264,000. So what you're trying to tell me is about the math that I'm doing. Well, what I'm saying is here comes the star power and the I'm overrun. Gonna, I'm going to have to hit you here in a second with the how do we do the average of this again because that's that's just well, that's just rotten. Go ahead. Well, here is quarter eight, Jim, and the overrun. In the Continental Classic, John Moxley versus Jay White, picture-in-picture ads, oh, I should say at 9.45 to 10 p.m., 709,000 viewers <laughs> with a five-minute overrun and the post-match with Swerve Strickland coming out to say hello, 721,000 viewers. So, so the Big Bang Theory is giving them an artificial first quarter every single week, and we should just kind of look past that. Yeah, well, and also what before we bury the lead here, the plumber and his cohort there, the main event of the evening gained a whopping nine thousand viewers in a program that had lost. Well, if you talk about from quarter two, they still lost almost a hundred. They'd lost over a hundred thousand until Lesiehus came out, and then they picked up nine thousand and the overrun. <laughs> What's 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 the matter? It's just, I, it's just it's hysterical. I mean, more people watched Riho than Moxley versus uh, Slingshot over there. This, Slingshot. The last quarter. <laughs> Slingshot Jay White. That's it from now. Somebody write that down. Remember, remind me of that later on. Yes, uh, Riho beat the main event by uh, eighty-two thousand people, 
and uh, or eight uh, seventy one thousand, whatever the fuck. And again, last week, and then let's talk about the first quarter. But last week we said omit the overrun number because that's probably ten thousand people that fucking wandered in trying to find it's a wonderful life or whatever was airing after the goddamn program was over with. So taking out the 964,000 in the first quarter, how would we do this? And taking out the end of it, what would we, we would, we, we would add two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, right? And get a total on that. And then find the percentage like you did on your goddamn deal before or what? No, that would be completely incorrect. We'd add these up and then we divide it is what we do. Division. Division is the key, Brian. All right. The, the seven quarters minus the first quarter minus the overrun. Yes. Added up and divided by seven is 759,000 viewers. You did that already? I was doing it while you, you were filibustering for a while there, oh, buddy. Oh, God damn. I was trying Sounds to figure like out Tony how to do it out loud. I'm, you know, I, hey, I thought I was doing great. Can't do it for yourself. But, what? What is that? You can't do it to yourself. I, I've been doing it to myself for years. <laughs> so what was that then? What was that number of viewers? Seven hundred and fifty-nine thousand viewers. Seven hundred and fifty-nine thousand. So that's the real number there, instead of seven eighty-two. Yeah, it's like the ticket count at Wembley. This is the turnstile count. This is the turnstile viewers. It's how many people actually came through the door. Like some other people were caught in there from the previous show. They hadn't exited yet. We can't count them. They had they had come to Wembley to see the Rolling Stones or whatever, and they just got lost in the bathroom and never found their way out yet. The three biggest stars in AEW history are CM Punk. Cody Rhodes, and Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how, how is that, by the way? I'm just thinking, would that be another way they could measure Wembley? Did we just stumble onto that? Instead of next year, instead of doing the turnstile count on how many people come in, they fucking measure how many people leave. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, uh, like and they that. get and they could they could claim that as a record. More people left this wrestling show than have ever left another wrestling show ever. You know, technically, you could say that about his Wembley show. Probably <laughs> more people paid hey, to left. leave. More people paid and left here than more, any other show ever. Yes, not only did more people <laughs> pay to see it, but more people left it than any other wrestling <laughs> show ever. <laughs> Uh, you thought, they're, not, they're not doing enough to maximize their the news they're making and the records they're setting. They could they could look a, have a whole new way of looking at this thing. So they've set a record. I don't have the number in front of me, but you know, for anyone saying, well, it's a tough time of year to draw a number. I think they did like nine hundred thirty something thousand last year for their similar themed show this time of year this week last year. Yeah, well, that was have a holly jolly blade job. Uh, last year, their special, right after winter is blowing. But for all the fans that are really into Japanese wrestling who wanted this here in the States, it's killing their numbers. Wouldn't it to be fair? It's not necessarily an indictment of the entire tournament system. It's just an indictment of the way Tony decided to do it. I mean, at somebody at some point with talent that is over and with issues 
and rivalries between them that have been maybe carrying on for a while. And then they're all, all 10, 12, however many are put in this fucking situation where they're going to wrestle a number of different rivals that they've had over the last 18 to 24 months. And one guy decides, well, I'll tell you what, if I get mathematically eliminated, I know I'm going to fuck so-and-so up in match four just so he can't go on. I don't care what happens. And you really put a lot of time and effort and attention into the, your 10 top guys competing in such a way that you don't have to completely blow somebody out of the goddamn water and beat them like a fucking rented mule every night and throw a couple of fucking assholes like I just described in there and make it babyface versus heel matches by the luck of the draw in the first round and except for one of them in the fucking other time and god da da then you've got something. But this, no. Yeah, 20-minute bangers with guys who lose every week isn't going to do it. Or with guys who would just appeal to what would classically be called newsletter readers. Not to say they're not talented in their own way, but what, how they're being presented, what's being presented, this tournament's a bomb, and then around it you have the devil running around turning off the lights <laughs> to the point where when they have technical problems, you don't know if it's real or the devil. And, and the only authority figures to stop it are Tony and his pirate friend. Yeah. Or Tony, his pirate friend, and Shivani to read the statements, like the fucking press officer from Iraq. But he had a clothespin on his nose when he was doing it. He almost literally reached up and grabbed his nose into the fake disgust that he has, right? For, oh, my God. They're chasing away their audience. For anyone who says, oh, well, people watch in different ways. Really? Are they getting a big boost in their YouTube numbers? And by the way, where's the fucking follow-up for Christian Cage and Adam Copeland? The biggest two stars, you could argue, on this show for at least the last couple months, at least how they've been presented, nothing. Well, that, that, was, Tony's, that was Tony's statement. What? He read it from Christian Cage, because they didn't want to come to work on a holiday week. What the fuck? They're old, and they deserve their rest. Man, this I show, identify with that. This yeah, is the audience going to be there when they come back? <laughs> if things are falling apart, you got to ask people to maybe help out a little bit more. But yeah, I guess you also have to say to yourself, things are falling apart. You have to be able to recognize that. Not things are great. Best shows we've ever done. Everything's great. Who's who's bad faith arguing about AEW? AEW themselves or people like us? There are no pe other people like us. And I want to apologize to Jace Nakarado for any banging I'm doing as I talk about <laughs> I'm so fired up about these fucking... See, ugh. I get this. I get all the time. I get, what are you banging on? What are you touching? What are you clumping? What are you clicking? What are you, are you spitting about? What are you doing? I'm, when I get vehement and start rattling things and whatever, and now you're the one that's doing the goddamn speechifying on the desk. But it's, it's just, it's amazing there are still people who won't come out and just say, Tony's not good at this. Tony needs help. The people Tony has surrounded himself with are not the help. And Tony needs to stop listening to a lot of the people he's been listening to, whether they work there or not. Because look at what's going on. Do you think it's because he's not listening to anybody or because he's listening to everybody at the same time? At least when you had the Jelly Nutellas and all these people running around this show. You knew not to listen to them. It wasn't boring. It was never boring. It was never just like, ugh, I gotta watch this. 
It didn't feel as dark. Half the matches on this show, I mean, it sounds like a silly thing. The ring's dark. The buildings are dark. This was the best lit building they've had in a while because they got a crowd there. The wrestlers were all wearing dark trunks. I said it before. It feels like NXT. Remember when it was NXT versus them? I always yes. said it felt too dark. I mean, that was a really small room and they kept well, it Well, then dark. They, they fixed that. They had the unicorn throw up on NXT. Who says they don't listen? But you got your way and it, they went too far. Yeah, so AEW is this quiet, dark product now. I'm telling you, they've lost, they've completely lost the plot and they barely had a hold of it from the beginning. And Cody held on to half of it. So <laughs> I don't even know what to say anymore. But people are going to pretend that the solution is Tony needs to do this. Tony needs to get the fuck out of the way or just say, this is my hobby. Don't treat it seriously. But if Tony gets out of the way, the problem is who he's going to hand off to because he's bingo. He's picked winners so far in almost every aspect of who he surrounds himself with or listens to or does business with to begin with or whatever. So, you know, remember we always said can't get worse. Could it get worse? Yes. Yes. <laughs> the Bucks are not there right now. The Bucks can return. The Dark Order can be put all over this show. The Hardy Party, whatever the fuck that is, can show up and do whatever they do on this show. There are multiple people that drag this show down that they could insert at any time. But who can they insert in the show that brings the show up? MJF, although that's starting to fade because of how he's been used. Swerve. Let's see how he's used. Who else? Moxley's not drawing anyone anymore. Moxley was always one of their TV draws. Yeah, but how, how often can you see that? That same that over and over. It's, it, that's done. Like, where are the hot angles? Where are the hot angles that get anyone interested in anyone beyond like, oh, I like the way they work. Like, there's never any, like, fucking... Ugh, it's horrible. The show is horrible. And a good people... blood feud. Well, no, Some don't say rivalries. that. Don't say that with Moxley. He'll take that to heart. Well, you know what I mean? <laughs> in the old manner of speaking, the blood feud, where I hate him deep down in my blood type of thing. Where you could have matches that would make it so that it's so completely illogical for you to stop in the middle or at the end of the match and slow things down to trade things back and forth. You should hate the person you're wrestling and never want to give them that opportunity for any reason to prove anything to anyone. Who, in all honesty, was MJF the last and maybe one of the only heels they've had where the people genuinely popped and got excited when the babyface made his comeback and was kicking the shit out of him? Rather than just, oh, we're cheering these moves now. No, get him, get him, kick his ass, that type of thing. Well, the answer is yes, but the other problem is who else has been a great heel like that? Like, even when well, Jericho yeah. was a heel, he was never a heel. And no, because he had the wonderful music. And the people could sing and dance and gesticulate about. But that's what I'm saying, that the whole, the whole logic universe of pro wrestling is built on no matter how you get there, no matter who it is, no matter what they do, no matter how long it takes, weeks, months, years, one day, whatever the fuck it is, the ultimate thing about pro wrestling is the bad guy finally gets his ass kicked. And the people jump up and down and cheer when it happens and they've paid to see it. 
Everything else is negotiable, right? You can think of 5 million different things that have been done in wrestling, but what is the classic wrestling moment that everybody would see in their mind or remember and or the payoff, the blow off, the goddamn big house, the end of the blood feud, whatever the case, the heel gets his ass kicked. That's what the goal of wrestling has been no matter when and where it was presented. It's just how you get there. They can't get there. They cannot get there because there's nobody to get there on. Their heels are more popular than their baby faces. And so nobody is going to cheer any of those heels getting their ass kicked. There's so much going on. It could only go downhill from here. I do want to ask you about something because it's a rumor going around that I saw online. And I thought it was at least an interesting conversation. We could have fun with it for a moment. I doubt it's true. If- I'll just say that. But it's a fun conversation point. The idea that Shawn Michaels may leave NXT, maybe go to WWE's main roster to work hand-in-hand with his buddy Triple H. It's funny to say that about those two. To work with Triple H on the main roster, and potentially someone could fill in, or not fill in, but take the role of running NXT with the younger talent, someone like CM Punk. The idea of AEW Dynamite's ratings falling and they'll probably rise up again. They'll get a big week. I mean, they have some big matches they could do, but overall, they're losing people. So it's going to keep going down. It's like the podcast one stock. You can kind of see what's happening. Imagine if it's that number being compared to an NXT run by CM <laughs> That'd be the ultimate kick in the gut to Tony Khan, wouldn't it? All right, we're we're way out there. What did what uh, what happened? Were you oxygen deprived during that time travel segment we did? Where you you said you doubt it it would be true. Here's the thing. Yes, that would be very ironic, as uh, as the people say. But in it, more rooted in reality, with what actually is going to probably happen, or maybe has happened, I don't know, or whatever, is that. The guy that Tony fired and made a heel out of and a fucking danger to the public and a goddamn menace out of, I was scared for my life in the atmosphere that he had over there in that company, has visited NXT and probably will again because I have no doubt that he's either going to offer to or they'll ask him to speak to the trainees in the program down there because so that already shows you the difference in what the fuck because they know it's bullshit they know he was working with children and blah 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 and he's not going to go in there and go okay i'm i'm here to take over we're going to rise up against the man mutiny mutiny attica attica and who are the people we always hear good things about punk from the younger wrestlers or the wrestlers that were inexperienced, who needed some advice, who didn't know how to do something, and he offered some advice. So, yes, role wise, it would fit with what now, he seems to enjoy. But now, here's that. But he's not going to run that fucking thing because here's another thing that he enjoys: not having a shitload of stress and people fucking up his ass all the time. So, would he actually take over and run the program? I don't know what Shawn Michaels' schedule or duty duties are. Does he still live out in Texas and he just 
bops over every once in a while or is he there all the time? Or whatever the case, I can believe and know for a, a fact because of what he's done that Punk likes mentoring or teaching or just advising or just shooting shit with about philosophy about the wrestling business with younger talent. But I don't think he wants to take a goddamn job where he's in Orlando at the performance center five days a week for potentially the length of the contract or the rest of his life or whatever the case, you see what I'm saying? Right. He can help write the TV and Ace Steel could run the program. Well, Ace Steel already lives in Florida. So he would be a... So you're saying it makes sense. He would be local. I don't think Punk is necessarily a person that wants to write a TV program every week right now either because did I mention pains in his various ass area? I don't think he's, you know, if and also he's going to be busy thinking about his promos and matches where he's about to be one of the biggest or the biggest star in the company on television. So I, you know, this might go on the back burner. I agree with you. That's why I said, I think it's a fun little rumor to talk about, but there's no way it's going to happen, but this is the kind of thing people are talking about right now. And, but it is ironic yeah. that, that the, the cancer over there, it could be, you know, Oh, we're the biggest company in the business. Come down and speak to our students. I just saw an interview with Sonny Kiss where Sonny Kiss was saying how Punk was so respectful and so nice and came up and said, how do I address you respectfully? I want to make sure, you know, if you, every single person who wasn't in a certain locker room <laughs> or maybe had like old issues going back to like the Indies 12 years ago or something, everyone else had a pleasant experience with him. It's, it's incredible. Like Powerhouse Hobbs, Ricky Starks. I mean, these are people who've gone public who have said things. So. FTR seemed to like uh, teaming up with him. Yeah. Uh, or at least the attention it got him, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, but uh, that's... The point is, there was a, there was only a certain, as you said, segment of the locker room from way out west and or their clingers on and school friends. Well, that is the AEW report and baseless rumor department here this week. <laughs> We will now move on to the classy portion of the show. I will turn things over right now to Mr. Jim Cornette. No, wait a minute. It's still your show. No! You deny. You deny. the. You're not the parent. You're not the father. I'm not even here. You know, I, I know, actually, I, I knew this, this guy one time that had a, a test done to make sure that his mother was really his mother. Okay. Well, it's he, he thought that, you know... Is this going somewhere? Is there they, a joke? They, no, they may have pulled something. <laughs> so this is a real story. I thought you had like a punchline uh, you were going to hit me with. No, you never know about these things. <laughs> you set it up like a joke. I expected like... <laughs> it turned out his mother was a goat. You know, something. <laughs> it was a jackal. Turned out he, was a, he had a very sad life. Like, yes, like, yes, yes. Very sad life. Anyway, now what we thought we'd do, since this is the end of the year, it could be the end of the, the whole episode, is uh, we've been doing 40 years ago in my life that I was involved in. Of course, I was heavily involved in my life at the time. And uh, we just got to the good part last, last month when 
We made our debut in Mid-South Wrestling, myself and Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry as the Midnight Express. But as I mentioned, and you can find the clip on YouTube if you want to be brought up to date in detail, but we started going down to do television the day before Thanksgiving of 83. We didn't actually start until Christmas week doing the live events in Mid-South Wrestling, so I was still kind of, sort of, in the Memphis territory until we went down there, right? But as you will see, kind of was more kind of than sort of. Because do you know what my all-time low in the wrestling business for a week was where I actually worked? Can you at least tell me how many times you worked? Well, I went once. But the, 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 I'm not counting weeks that I've taken off in my life. I'm right. talking about if I worked in the wrestling business at least once that week, what is my lowest earning week ever? All right. So if you worked one super buttermilk show and there wasn't a big house, $25. Oh, God damn it. We, we had a $50 guarantee at least at that point. $75 was the least I ever made in the wrestling business for a week. <clears throat> and it happened in December 1983. Because remember, I, we talked about the B shows that they'd been running. Because when Lawler had been booking over the summer, he had 40 guys in the territory. And we talked about the how many people were on the cards in Memphis and that they started running two shows a night on most nights besides Memphis to you know, to book the B crew where they could keep all these guys working. And then Jerry Jarrett, had, because as summer and fall gave way to start in the winter, that wasn't going to work because you couldn't run that many shows and those spot shows in the wintertime with that frequency, blah, 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 right? And Jarrett's seeing what's going on, so he came in and started cutting that shit out. And that's where he started talking to Watts, and they were going to trade some talent. Watts really... Watts wanted talent that he could build, and Jarrett just wanted to get rid of a lot of the talent that he had. And also, Jarrett's business was down, so he was looking for something that was different, but he was looking to get rid of as many as he could because, well, remember, you've seen the cards. Even after we all left and went to Louisiana, there were still a, a number of guys there, and they kind of just filtered out to other places or disappeared from memphis they 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 condensed the the crew and again after you guys left they started filling in with more people not just the guys from mid-south but randy savage yes and that's the one that that they really wanted uh and and that produced at that point in time in the angle with lawler so everybody prospered because the memphis territory picked up and at the same time louisiana took off but in the meantime Going back to December, guess where I was December 1st of 1983, which by the way, according to my date book that I'm looking at right here, was the first day of Hanukkah that year. Oh, there you go. So I received a wonderful gift. It was 1983. Could it have been a G.I. Joe? I don't know. What were you, two? I was three. Well, you wouldn't get a G.I. Joe if you were three. No, people did lots of inappropriate things in terms of giving out gifts to kids in the 80s. 
There are lots well, of but things. I mean, that... three years old, how would you know what well, G.I. Just... Joe was? Had you been explained the fucking principle of military service yet? I didn't request one, but based on when it was reintroduced or yeah, introduced, I guess, in the smaller format onto the market, which was that year, and knowing some of the fools who bought me gifts when I was younger, and knowing what toys I had when I was younger, I think Hanukkah 83, I got some G.I. Joes. So were like people, you know, giving you goddamn sex toys when you were nine? How the hell do you get from G.I. Joe to sex toys? Well, you just said inappropriate age. Well, because it's, I mean, I... there are little figures with little parts and you could break them apart in half because they're <laughs> held together <laughs> they, by a they rubber band. They are. They're different parts and you can take them on and put them off. It depends on what you get. <laughs> anyway, I was in Lexington, Kentucky at Rupp Arena. Oh, that's a big show then. On December the 1st, and I don't know why, because this is the only show that I worked that week from Monday, November, no, from Sunday, November 27th until Tuesday, December 6th. That's the only show I worked. Because here's the thing. They had cut off the B shows and the, the, Jared already knew that I was going to, his hands were clean now. They, they didn't have room for me on the cards uh, as same as a lot of people. But now that he knows he's got me a job and I'm going to go down there and he's thinking, and Cornette's going to make more money there than half of my fucking roster just being the manager. His hands are clean, so he doesn't have to book me either. So they're saving the fucking money, right? So I was caught in limbo in the twilight zone of I'm kind of still in the territory, but they don't really need me and they know I'm, I'm about to leave. So that was my $100 week. I made $100 that night because the house was 18 grand, which, by the way, was down for Lexington. That wasn't even 4,000 people. Is that the last Lexington show before Savage? Um, December 83? I think it it may see I don't have the card because I wasn't there for January, but if he didn't come in, it probably was. If he didn't come in the next one, he came in the one after that, I would think. Hold on. Wait a minute. Did we? No, we weren't there again. So I don't know is what I about that. But he he debuted in Lexington either in January or February. Off the top of my head. But guess who I managed? At the end of 1983. Dennis Condry. You are partially correct. Norvell Austin. You are all the way correct. I met Dennis Condry and Norvell Austin against the fabulous ones, Stan Lane and Steve Kern. Wow. So I not only managed the original version of the Midnight Express or one configuration of it, but I also managed them against one of the guys that would later on replace Dennis in the Midnight Express. But this was totally unrelated because I think, you know what? I know why they booked me there. Because when Watts came down to check everybody out and we went over the, uh, the card and what I did that night, remember I had helped fuck the fabs out of the match with uh, Condry and Austin, correct? For the World Tag Team title. That sounds right. So they showed that 
on TV, and since since uh, they uh, wanted to see me get even, or get wanted to see the Fabs get even with us and me, because the Fabs beat us that night in Lexington, that's probably why they booked me there. So there you have it. So Just remember in Memphis that night, they came out during the Rock and Roll Express and Grapplers match, I think, wasn't it? Or the Rock, yes. Rock and Roll and Grapplers, whatever. Hold on, I've got my book in front of me. Uh, but Rock and Roll and Bruise Brothers. That's where the Fabs had come out later that night after I fucked them against Condry and Austin for the World Tag Team title. They came out and gave me a pile driver on the floor. But I don't think they showed that in Lexington. So with everyone knowing you're going to Mid-South, two questions about that. One, in this situation specifically, does Norvell Austin say anything? It's kind of awkward. He knows that his longtime <laughs> partner is leaving and this kid that all of a sudden is managing him, he's going too. And also, it's not the same as giving notice and leaving someplace. You're not necessarily working out your notice. You were just told that you're going here. Yes, I was, just, I was informed. <laughs> you're leaving. Here's where you're going. But what's it like saying goodbye to the territory, in a sense, to whoever and whatever, knowing that with other people knowing you're leaving and with you knowing you're not coming back for, at a minimum, a while? Well, this was the period of time where all the guys were telling me that the fans down there were going to kill me. So that was the first thing. And, and, and I mean, the first thing they would come <laughs> up is they would be like, oh, they're going to kill you. Or you're gonna get you're gonna get stabbed, or you're gonna get cut, or my God, you're gonna start a riot, or they're gonna fucking hang you from the highest yard arm in the British fleet, or whatever the case. And that's why I'd started looking for a goddamn a fucking a blunt instrument, something to carry. Because but the whole whatever shows I was at between our first Shreveport TV and when we started. The guys were telling me that whoever had worked that territory, which was almost everybody at one point or another. But also I was, I was obviously, I was kind of nervous because, you know, I'm like, well, at least I know how to get to all these buildings. Right. But at the, at the same time, I'm like, please hurry up because this week I made a hundred dollars here in a week or so I'm going to make $75. I had more money in the bank when I started managing from being a photographer than I did when I went to Louisiana after I'd been a manager for fucking 14 months or whatever it was. I was spending money at this point to stay in the wrestling business, but boom, this lo and behold had, had come up. So yes. So I'm just like, if we're going to do this, I wish it'd hurry up and, and happen. But yeah, I was going to miss you know, all the places that I, these are not only places that I'd been just cause I've been in the business for a year, but I'd been going to most of these towns for years and years before that shooting pictures, announcing, doing whatever. So that was going to be odd. But as they say, life goes on. And so was rent. <clears throat> cause after the first, I didn't work again until the sixth. And then they booked me in Louisville. And I have to think that it may be just because maybe Jimmy wasn't there. I don't know, but it was the fabs over the bruise brothers. I was with the bruise brothers. So I, I don't know why, or maybe, maybe they just said, we'll book him once a week 
you know, in, until he leaves so that they can't, uh, Teeny won't get mad. I don't know. But here's the, the house in Louisville was $7,100. And I made 75 bucks, so Louisville was down at that point. And the, the previous December, which we'll get to in a second, I don't know if they did it this year or not, or that year, but the previous year, uh, Christmas week to Louisville, they had brought Roughhouse Fargo back to team with Jackie and handsome Jimmy Valiant against, I think, Hart and may have been Bobby Eaton and Coco Ware. I can't remember. But Roughhouse had not been to Louisville since 1975. And his deal was he would come to, to visit Jackie, wherever Jackie was at the holidays, usually in Nashville. So they booked him there. And they did over 5,000 people. It was, a, I think, a record gate at that point with the price structure. And it was, you know, it just incredible. Those people were crazy. And now a year later, they're doing, but we were doing 20 grand in Louisville for a lot of that time with the Lawler and Bachwinkle matches and blah, blah, blah. And now Louisville was down to $7,100. So it was kind of eh, a little dreary. But then the next day, I was back to Shreveport. That was the second Mid-South Wrestling taping. And this was the one where Dundee was at the first time as, as Booker, definitely. Because remember, we've debated on whether he was there at the first one that, uh, that we made or not. And I don't, I think we kind of decided he wasn't, didn't we? I think that is what we thought, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so the point is the plane ticket that Watts or Mid-South Wrestling sent me alone to fly down to Shreveport from Nashville and back just to do TV cost more than the previous three weeks of money I'd made in the wrestling business. So I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on? I can't. I'm in the witness protection program in my own home territory, and these people are flying me around. But we did three matches because that was going to stretch us through the the Christmas, uh, the holiday week with an extra TV. But we beat various incarnations of Mike Jackson, Coco Ware, and Randy Barber. And uh, that's what Watts was doing. He was just putting us on TV every week, beating somebody. And he and or Jim Ross or Boyd Pierce would be talking about how goddamn what a tag team specialist uh, Eaton and Condry were and how dangerous they were, even though they were small, that their teamwork is phenomenal and that type of thing. Just so the people are seeing us for weeks before we show up. And that was, that was you know, booking 101, right? Coco's there because he drove Lawler? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, that is the taping also where Lawler worked a couple of shows and uh, Coco drove Lawler down from Memphis and got to work while he was there. And, uh, you know, because that was, I mean, they used Lawler on, on the TV as a courtesy because he was the big star from the territory that they were trading talent working with. And that was where Lawler was looking at you know, some of, of these guys. Uh, but they never had any intention of, and Lawler didn't have any intention of coming down and really working any dates. It was just, that was 
that was the return visit. I don't know if Jerry Jarrett ever went. I think he just told Lawler, go down and look and see what you like. Huh. Now that I think about it. Well, no, because the, I mean, it didn't go that time, but the original time, the what about the blowjobs, that was both of them. That wasn't just Lawler who said that, wasn't it? Um, well, that may have been before. See, I don't know that they went. That was before we showed up, maybe. But I don't know that they went to, uh, to TV until then. I don't know. Or it may have just been Lawler and Jarrett remembered that he was there wanting to know where all the blowjobs were. <laughs> Nevertheless, <clears throat> we'll get we'll get there in a minute. But we had a nice time at uh, Mid-South TV and staying again at the Alamo Plaza in Shreveport. What were your first impressions of the crew in Mid-South beyond the wrestlers, the referees, the commentators, the setup, in terms of the, not necessarily professionalism, but just the the way it was structured and run compared to Memphis. What were your first impressions? Well, I just based off Boyd, the TV alone. Well, I love Boyd Pierce and always did because I knew he was a gimmick and he had been there forever and people loved him. He was like the, the Lance Russell, you know, the, so I understood the wild suits and the whole nine yards was part of his, and what a great guy he was. And he'd always been around the periphery of the wrestling business in, terms of announcing or writing doing programs or whatever and he had money he was well off but he he just enjoyed the business and being around and being part of it so i understood that whereas some people are like oh that fucking no i love boyd pierce and i got him and jim ross was starting at that point i think he may have been doing tv for like a year or so but you know he was good and you could tell that he was a student of of Watts because he had Watts's delivery style. And I had seen obviously Watts on TV from tapes I'd get from Randy Hales, who could get the Greenwood, Mississippi show from the early 80s. So I'd seen the TV and what it looked like on TV. It still it was not the most <laughs> not the most comfortable place to do a television taping. It wasn't made to do TV. It was a fucking you know, a gym and an athletic center for the boys club at the fairgrounds. So the dressing rooms that were way up those long flight of stairs and it was awkward to get to and from without people seeing you. And the the fact that it, um, you know, it was just really a, a two camera shoot with an announced desk camera. It wasn't a major television production, but they had a full house every time and the people were into everything. So that part was good. Watts, at that point, we had very little interaction unless he came up to talk to me because it wasn't like I was going to just go up and say, oh, uh, Bill, what should I do here? I was sitting there waiting to do whatever the fuck everybody told me to do, right? And there were two locker rooms kind of at the, at the top of those stairs, and... One of them was babyface, obviously. One of them was heel for the door in front of the people where you'd go out. But they they were two rooms, but they both adjoined in the middle. And Watts would sit at the monitor at the edge of the babyface locker room. So I generally tried to be somewhere, whereas the, 
a lot of the guys wanted to be as far, as far away from Cowboy as possible, so they'd go over next to the bathroom at one end of the heel locker room. I tried to be right in the corner at the other end where I could peek around a corner, watch what was going on with headset and a monitor and how this shit operated, right? What about when he was on commentary? And well, and when he was on commentary, it was the same thing. You could hear him, that little speaker a mile away. So I was trying to keep an eye. And at the same time, we had to be going over our shit. But I I tried to keep an ear on what was going on live. But he set the tone for the show. And he'd have the the meeting with the talent beforehand. And then whoever the booker was, whether it was Ernie Ladd when we first got there and then switched to Dundee right after. Or, you know, some of the referees would be deputized to run some messages around or time or whatever. And the, the, the format was on the wall, the order of events and where, you know, you knew, God damn it. I'm working with this person, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it, it was just, it was professionally done. There wasn't post-production. They rolled live to tape. You didn't goddamn stop down for 10 minutes. Oh, I, I just can't get that finishing sequence. Fuck you, they're playing your music. So it was like live television in front of how many, what did the Irish McNeil, was it five, six, seven hundred people with both sides of those bleachers filled up? And when you got there in 84, I mean, the way things blew up, if you look at 1981 or 82, there was like one flat row on each side, and the bleachers were kind of sporadically filled. And then in 84, they... It seemed like they put a lot more seats in that room. Well, they built it because, see, here's the thing. They had just moved at that point. They had just moved to the Irish McNeil from, they used to do Channel 3, the studios. KTBS, right? right? Yeah. So the, the Channel 3 in Shreveport, that was inherited from the Leroy McGurk days where they did studio wrestling and they'd have, it was like Memphis or any other studio show. They may have 75 people in there. Um, but Watts wanted a, he wanted an arena look without paying for an arena. So he kind of made one in this gym slash civic center. And that way, you you know, he built it over time to where, because they still ran Shreveport at the municipal auditorium every two weeks. And they, you know, it didn't draw big. Shreveport was never a big money town, but they drew steady. And then they also had that loyal group that would come to the boys club for the TV tapings, which they had to buy tickets to. They didn't let them in free. I don't know. Was it $5, $6? I can't remember. But And here's the thing. In 1983, by the way, a dollar was $3 today. So any figure we give multiply by three. So that that $75 week I was talking about, it was actually $225 in today's money. Oh, whoopee ding. But that that was the thing is they, every two weeks on a Tuesday night was Shreveport at the auditorium. And every two weeks on a Wednesday night was the TV taping. So they were running that town 52 times a year by the time they got finished. And before they went to the Irish McNeil Boys Club, KTBS was in Shreveport. So they were taping TV in a studio in Shreveport. Yes, because that's where we still did the interviews. We did local promos every Wednesday, whether we were in Shreveport the night before or not. 
And we would do interviews at Channel 3 from 9 o'clock until 3, 3.30, and then go to Greenwood, Mississippi, or whatever the fuck. So that still remained, and that's where I was going to mention Reeser Bowden. Reeser Bowden had done wrestling for a while at that point, but he was a a Channel 3 employee, an announcer, and that's why he sounded more like, you know, doing the local mortuary update. And they phased him out while we were there because I guess they finally got the opportunity to. I don't know, but he was the one guy, he was so dry, you couldn't get anything out of him. And doing the the local interviews, it was fucking death because he was eating up the time, right? You remember seeing him. I'm a big Reeser Bowden fan. If anyone wants to go back to the episodes of the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review with me and Mike Mills, we review everything <laughs> up to the end of 83. Lots of Reeser Bowden audio. It's hysterical because it's not just that he takes his time saying everything. There are times that stuff's happening and he's holding the mic and he's amused to be around it all. Like his reactions are not the typical wrestling. Actually bemused, not even amused, but bemused. <laughs> yeah, he's just, he starts smirking and making faces at the camera. And well, what? and remember, <laughs> the, there's the famous blooper out there that actually made America's funniest video TV show of some description, not even about wrestling, was when Scott Irwin, Super Destroyer, got all fired up and was doing the promo and fucking kicked the podium, but he kept, Reeser Bowden was sitting behind the podium on a like a bar stool, and the rung of it got hung up in the podium. It got kicked over. It kicked the stool out from under him. He went over backwards and didn't even act surprised at that and almost killed him. And he was he still was, you know, oh, oh. So he was just, that was death. But anyway, but otherwise, the, um, you know, it was a different way of doing television. The studio was more intimate. We didn't really do a lot of live interviews except in the ring, in the Irish McNeil. He'd put guys on commentary a lot, but it was at the same time, you know, I'd seen some of these TV shows before, and I knew these guys going to have incredible matches, the angles. You know, I'd seen DiBiase working with fucking. Uh, dog and all the stuff they'd done with the Duggan introduction and the Rat Pack and all this other shit. And and it was good television even before we got there. Imagine that. I have an example of Reeser if you want to hear a little here on the please, show. Please do. I won't play too much of this, but this is Reeser Bowden from 83 introducing a Hacksaw Jim Duggan promo. Tonight, beginning at 7.30 at the Mississippi Gulf Coast Coliseum, we can guarantee lots of excitement all the way down the wrestling program. In the main event, Tiger Conway Jr. and Mr. Wrestling 2 will do battle with Kamala the Ugandan Warrior and, listen to this, General Skandor Akbar himself. Hacksaw Butch Reed from Atlanta will tangle with Super Destroyer, also from Atlanta. You'll see Tim Horner meet the Black Ninja. But listen to this. It's not over yet. Chavo Guerrero meets oh, Hacksaw Duggan. Go marching in. Oh, when the Yanks go marching in. I'm proud to be in the number. When the Yanks go marching in. A singer yet. I'll be stopped. There's Reese Bowden. That was it. It was like he was a 30s radio announcer. Ladies, 
Do you poop out at parties? Do you stoop and strain? Try a bottle of Dr. Proctor's Red Rectum Rockers. See, he would take his time, but the other thing is there was like a Groucho Mark slash like John Landis thing to him where like something would happen and he would look at the camera and like raise his eyebrows. A little slyly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <sighs> but anyway, so the point is, first impression was, I'm just thinking, oh shit, what have we gotten into? And I'm lucky to be here apparently because everybody says this thing's going to work. We'll see what happens. What was Dennis saying? Because he's kind of the leader of the group oh, at this time, right? He, he was positive it was going to work. And see, the thing is, he was right in hindsight because he was looking around the locker room and we were completely different. And, you know, they had tons of talent, but the people had seen not only those guys, but their style and that style and a change in booking and a change in in-ring at the same time you know, he could tell was they could just, he and Bobby could outperform, not trying to knock anybody, everybody else, because they were all, you know, Watts' football players that were 300 pounds. And, and it was great to have some of them individually, but to have all of them at the same time, we were completely different. And, and like we've said before, I was about as far from Skandor Akbar in terms of gimmick and personality and the, the fans were scared of Akbar. They wouldn't try to go up and punch him. He's the one because he kicked the fucking shit out of him. He was the one they put Drano in water guns and tried to hide and shoot him in the eyes when he walked by over the cop's shoulder. So, you know, that's why it was open season on me. Did you already know that the Rock and Roll Express were coming in? Um, or you that know, anyone else that, that was your size, other than maybe Terry Taylor, that anyone else was coming in? No, the first, because, well, we knew Terry, because I think Terry came with us, didn't he? He was the first one. But um, but no, the rock and roll, I don't think we knew until we started the house shows, at least in uh, at Christmas time, because they didn't pop up until, what was it, January or February? And we weren't going in there with the thought of, oh my God, as soon as we get the program with Rock and Roll Express, because... We hadn't had any programs yet. There was no Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express history. And obviously Dundee said, well, the, you know, he was going to push us to the moon because Watts was telling him to. So he picked Ricky and Robert said, these guys can have a better match with Butte and Dennis than any of these other guys down here. We started out with Wrestling 2 and Magnum T.A., so that we could win the belts and establish ourselves as the top heel team so that then these underdog baby faces would come in and chase it. And no disrespect to two and TA, but two was not going to be taking fucking bumps like Ricky Morton at that stage of his career. And Magnum was still, what he'd been in business two years, he was green and he'd never been in that main event position before. So it wasn't like, we were going to have a long rivalry with them. They were already the champions there. We had to have a program with them to come out with the belts. Not that it fits in here, but while I'm thinking about it, I'm going to ask you, were you prepared for just how hot Houston was going to be for everything that happened in 84? I mean, they go crazy for the Rock and Roll Express. JYD was already huge there. But your matches, I mean, all the footage is out there, including some matches without any commentary, which were even better. 
because you really get to hear the crowd and feel everything. You know what you're getting in Louisiana. Everyone's saying they're going to kill you. Did you know about Houston yet? What it was going to be? Well, <laughs> I mean, we kind of got the idea real quick that time. The Which one was it? I don't have my 84 book in front of me, but the first time that we wrestled Magnum and Wrestling 2 there is when Dundee had the deal. We did the powder and fucking, uh, this was in January powder in two's eyes and he's blind and magnum's foot is tied up in the ropes and he's hanging upside down and i'm on the apron of the ring whipping him with my belt while bobby and dennis are working uh, wrestling two over with the racket and the bells ringing and paul bosch didn't know he didn't bother in the in the minutia of the finishes right he knows that the new booker has come in and they've got some new talent, and he's all for stuff like that. But they didn't run that finish by Paul Bosch, and he went crazy because he's in the back because we found out later on the people were starting to rumble, and cops were starting to have a tough time at the back of ringside because I'm so wrapped up in what I'm fucking doing, right? They just told me, whip him until fucking Bobby and Dennis call you off or whatever because I didn't know what the fuck I was doing then. So we're about to start a riot and Paul's back in the back fucking pissed at Dundee. Go, what the fuck are you doing? And he comes out and you see it on the video. You've seen this particular match where he comes to ringside and the people are screaming and they're throwing shit. And when he reaches up and grabs me by the shoulder, the place not only pops and blows, but it cools off at the same time. Because it was like, Paul's stopping it. We don't have to. And because he grabbed me, this was not called for in the finish. I mean, he did this. He grabbed me <laughs> by the shoulder, and I looked around, and there's Paul fucking Bosch, the promoter of Houston. I'm making my first main event appearance in. <laughs> I look over my shoulder. He says, get out of here now. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> And you said, and then I watched this not long ago. Somebody retweeted it or whatever the fuck on YouTube. I go over and I'm trying to tell Bobby and Dennis that they haven't had the same experience, right? Of looking fucking eyeball to eyeball with Paul Bosch. They get out of here now. And I'm telling them, we got to go. We got to go. And they're like, yeah. And they're throwing another kick or whatever. I said, no, we got to fucking go. <laughs> And I'm getting, and, and we get down on the floor, and they have the cops swarm us. And it, like New Orleans, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, these are not security guards or, you know, the rent a cop, as we used to say, or, you know, ushers or what. These are uniformed and on duty Houston police officers that are equipped right there to fucking take you down, handcuff you and take you to jail and have the authority to do so instantly. Right. And they get around us and we do that flying wedge. And that's the first time I, I realized how tight that fucking alleyway was right in the, in the back or to get to the back, you had to go through ringside. When when ringside was full, it was very crowded and narrow. And then when you'd get into an open area before you'd go under the 
general admission seats under an overhang and through the locker room door, there was an open floor area where they could start chucking bottles from the balcony at you. Because we also found out about the Sam Houston Coliseum, if you waited till about 9.30, quarter to 10 on a Friday night, if it wasn't sold out, they stopped watching the doors and people could sneak in and go up in the bleachers and see the fucking main event for free and they'd bring bottles in and chuck them as you left. But anyway, so... Part of the problem is when it comes to a whipping or a strap angle or anything, you had a way of doing it so you looked like you were really violent and angry and unstoppable. And I not gonna a, stop. I got a lot of complaints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, and here's the thing. I'd just been, you know, this was, I was doing these for the first time, right? So I was laying them in, poor Maggie, right? And after a while, I learned how, okay, you double the strap up so it makes a better noise. And if you swing this way with your shoulder, you don't have to put the oomph in it with your elbow. But it was still landing. And on a Clash of Champions, I apologized to Bobby Fulton ahead of time. And he knew, you know, it was... And why is he going to complain when his partner had got knocked blind anyway in the same match? But anyway, back to uh, where were we? Houston. Actually, we're not in Houston yet. We were talking about Houston, but we just we finished. We just left Shreveport. Time travel is what. Well, no, we're not time. It was a slow trip. I didn't have to be back for three days, and then. On Saturday, December tenth, I was in Nashville, Tennessee. And you know why I was in Nashville? Because I lived there and Jimmy Hart wanted to be in Jonesboro that night because he was next to Memphis. And this was my setup to my final event in the territory. I managed the grapplers, Lynn Denton and Tony Anthony, over Jeff Van Camp and Franklin Hayes, who later would become John Tatum. This is when he thought he was Michael Hayes' little brother. And the Russian invader, Jerry Novak, beat U.S. Steel, and Condry and Austin beat Bobby Eaton and Dutch Mantell. So I managed Dennis Condry and Norvell Austin to beat Bobby Eaton and Dutch Mantell. And finally, the fabulous ones against the Bruise Brothers in that hot, unforgettable angle, I managed the Bruise Brothers in a cage match. And even though the fabulous ones beat us, for some reason, they brought it back the following week, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the house in Nashville was $7,500, and I made 85 bucks. But by the times three rule, that was kind of a lackluster crowd in Nashville and a shitty payoff. And in today's money, that would be $22,500 in a town they ran 50 times a year. And the payoff for me would have been about 250 bucks. So that's, that's what shitty felt like back then in the wrestling business. Does any of this bother you? You just thinking I'm about to go somewhere else. I don't care. I'm well, no, I'm, you know, I'm certainly not going to cuss at them because they just got me this fucking job. I wish I could have worked a little more on the way out, but you know, nevertheless, how can I complain? Even though I made, actually we got a hundred bucks for the, uh, Mid-South TV, in addition to the plane tickets, and the uh, and the motel was only $25. So I made $175, $260 that week. That ain't bad. 
And then from December 10th, I was off until the following Saturday, December 17th. This was my $75 week. <laughs> and do you know? Okay, go ahead. Are you paying attention to the gimmick table, to the photo sales that are no longer yours? Uh, No, I couldn't get out there. I would have had to walk through the people to get out there. But I I was missing the uh, Are you the thinking about at that point. I, well, I'm thinking about it. <clears throat> well, I... Hey, it's not like I could even say, well, the managing thing didn't work out. I'm going back to take pictures. Now I've been a heel. I've got, you've heard of no exit strategy. I got no entrance strategy. Yeah. You couldn't, it's like being a crooked referee. You got to go somewhere else for a while, quite a while, sometimes forever. But all I had to do was wait a week and I could be booked in Nashville again <laughs> because Jimmy didn't want to be in Nashville on December 17th, but guess what the match was, Brian? You may remember I've told you about it. Oh, I'm really guessing. Nashville, Jimmy didn't want to be there. My last my last shot in the oh, Tennessee Territory. It wasn't Bobby Eaton. It was some because I remember guess Bobby Eaton the last time you asked me this question. Duke Myers. Well, remember, no, it was the fabulous ones the previous week against the Bruise Brothers at a cage match. And even though they beat us. We still got some heat on them afterwards, and they brought back the following week to team with them, Roughhouse Fargo. Oh, that's the right. the brothers and me. That's right. In a steel cage match at the Nashville Fairgrounds, I can truthfully say that I have competed in the ring as a quote-unquote wrestler against Jerry Lawler, Shawn Michaels, superstar Billy Graham, and Roughhouse Fargo. How's that for a goddamn spread of opponents? And within a few months, Bill Watts, Junkyard Dog, and Sonny King. And all and Dusty Rhodes, and the Road Warriors, and the, the list goes on. So anyway, and that's where the fuck I found out that fucking roughhouse was goddamn. He was the stiffest son of a bitch. Everything, everywhere he touched you hurt. He would headbutt you and you'd see stars. He had bones where if people shouldn't have bones that he would mash into your fucking soft spots. And then they had ribbed me beforehand. Like, this is literally my last night. I'm starting in a week in Louisiana. They said, well, it's a cage match and, a, you know, rough out. You're going to need to get some juice. I'm, fuck, I got to be on TV in Mid-South Wrestling next week. And they were, I don't think, well, I don't know if we ought to do this or not. And finally, they tag me in where I missed the elbow drop on Stan, and he rolls over and tags Roughhouse, and Roughhouse comes in and grabs me in a headlock, and he takes his fucking thumbnail, and he presses it into my forehead, and he says, watch the blade, kid, and he starts running it across. I'm like, no, I've got TV next. <laughs> oh, God, and he pulled my shoes off and beat me over the head with them and everything. It, but it, again... What a way to leave the Tennessee Territory. I wrestled Roughhouse Fargo, the fuck, my favorite wrestler from fucking 11 years previous when I was only 12 or whatever. No, I was only 10. Good Lord. Anyway, so there you go. And, and the house was down, by the way, with Roughhouse. I don't know what the fuck, but it was down $600. So instead of 85 bucks, I made 75 Anyway, then from the 17th, I was off until Christmas Day because on December 24th, 
Bobby and Dennis and I all three drove down to Alexandria, Louisiana. And if anybody wants to, for this part of the program, Google map or whatever you do, just a, a road map of the state of Louisiana, just so you see where these towns are I'm about to talk to you about. But then imagine 40 years ago, they didn't have any north-south interstates in the state of Louisiana. Interstate 10 ran from Houston through Lake Charles, Louisiana, Lafayette, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, into New Orleans, and over to Biloxi, right along the coast, right? 300 miles to the north, Interstate 20 ran from Dallas through Shreveport, Louisiana, Monroe, Louisiana, and over into Jackson, Mississippi. Anything north to south in that fucking state, you were on a two-lane highway, sometimes driving through a swamp or a bayou. And it took for fucking ever. And, Brian, you kind of know the history of the, the Louisiana wrestling territory. And that far back as the 40s, 50s, 60s, it was... And maybe the Welches or the Fullers had opened up southern Louisiana as part of the original Gulf Coast territory. The Fields family had had things to do with it. There was always local promoters involved in either in front of the scenes or behind the scenes in wrestling in Louisiana because of the not only the commission, but you needed a local person to pay the right people off in the state of Louisiana. But it had never been a big money territory and it had never been a place that got a ton of publicity in in wrestling in it by the mid 70s it, that's a, or early 70s it ended up as the southern end of Leroy McGurk's Oklahoma Missouri Arkansas territory through various changes of hands of promoters well so early mid 70s right Right. Are you, yes. yes. I'm, well, as, as I'm looking for some concurrence there, because that's why we see the the early rookie year pictures of Stan Hansen and Frank Goodish when because they started down in that territory. And Lil Al Vavasur is the one who took all those curtain pictures of him, right? Yeah, I got his file and the wrestling news file, and it's like this crazy letter at the end, like begging Norm Kitzer to. <laughs> call up bill watts like there's a conspiracy against me it's watts and grizzly and my ex-girlfriend and this other woman and i gotta dive deeper into it but you know mcgurk had the territory and then the big thing that changed it was watts coming home and yeah. becoming the booker and the big star and a heavyweight at that it had never really been a heavyweight territory so that began the change and then watts and leroy falling apart in 79 Watts took Louisiana. Imagine if you had gone there. I mean, I know you weren't in the business, but if you go back a few years, if you had gone there then, yeah. no Oklahoma, no Arkansas. Yeah, no Houston. No Houston See, that, before that's 82. That's right. Well, that's the point that I was going to make is that when Louisiana, as I said, had never been a prize, you know, jewel of wrestling, and it ended up as the McGurk territory, the southern end of it, and it was... When you first, at one point when McGurk had it, and I've heard this from guys that worked there then, to be booked in New Orleans was being punished because everybody was based around McGurk's Oklahoma and New Orleans was 500 fucking 600, 700 fucking miles, right? To New Orleans and to South Louisiana. 
And you mentioned also the reason why the Watts was a heavyweight was different. McGurk had gone for what the, the territory and the fans traditionally wanted was a real amateur athlete, of a wrestling star. But before it was Danny Hodge, junior heavyweight champion. He was lighter. As a boxer, he was a light, light heavyweight. You know, he competed at 210 or whatever in wrestling. Watts was a, an amateur wrestling star from Oklahoma, but he was 300 fucking pounds. So it was the same flavor, but it came back to boomerang on McGurk because Watts changed everything. Plus, when Watts became a traveling star, he learned from Roy Shire. He learned from Eddie Graham. He learned from fucking Vince Sr. And then he comes back and there, bless him, there's Leroy McGurk, right? So Watts was already kind of the smarter guy in the room. And Watts becomes Booker and part owner, and they can't coexist. McGurk's original territory and his seat of operations was Oklahoma, Missouri, and Arkansas. When they split, Watts had to take Mississippi and Louisiana because that's what he could get and get away from Leroy easy, more easily. And he also knew he had seen the potential. It had never been realized because it had never been seen and been done and been tried properly to really fucking go in and draw money in Louisiana. And that's why he ended up shocked. He shocked the world when he started running the Superdome. As we'll get to in a second, a big crowd in New Orleans was, before Watts, was four or 5,000 people, maybe. And then suddenly this is going on. And meanwhile, McGurk's end of the territory is dying off. And when Watts finally got Oklahoma, McGurk went out of business. Oklahoma was his prime area, and he folded up and had to, to go. And Watts was drawing six-figure gates in Oklahoma City a year after he got it. Two years, maybe. So obviously, there was something different about the presentation, right? It wasn't just, I opened up a brand new area. It was, he was going in and cultivating this. At any rate, the reason why we went to Alexandria, and that's why I started that long-winded dissertation, when you worked the territory previously, when Watson first started, all the guys who went to work for Mid-South, they started living in Baton Rouge because it was a college town. Guys wanted to go out to bars. Also, there was, there was an interstate that ran to t through town, and it was somewhat civilization. But we had been, when we talked to guys at the TV tapings, we'd been told that more of the guys that were coming in recently were living in Alexandria because it was in the middle of the state and you would be home more often instead of being in a hotel at night. In other words, if you lived in, in Baton Rouge, every time you had to do TV, you were going to stay over, yes, but even if you had to go to Shreveport, to do TV and then on to Little Rock the next, whatever the fuck, you were up at that end, you were buying hotels all over the place. Baton Rouge was almost all the way south. So you'd get a 100 to 110 mile jump on anything to the north and northwest by living in Alexandria and being in the middle of Louisiana. Shreveport was 120 miles of two-lane road from Alexandria. 
Monroe, Louisiana was 90, 95 miles of two-lane road. Fucking Lake Charles, Louisiana was 100 and, I believe, 30 or 40 miles, but most of it was two-lane. Lafayette was only 80 miles. Baton Rouge was 110 miles. New Orleans was 200 miles. Biloxi, Mississippi was 260 miles. Houston was 250 miles. I can still do it. Jackson, Mississippi was 200 miles. Little Rock, Arkansas from Alexandria was a goddamn brutal, miserable 270 miles of two-lane road through every Hickburg and Farmville <laughs> you can imagine where you would follow bales of hay and cows' asses down a road when you were panicking that you were going to get fined. And then the Oklahoma trip, even from, from anything, Oklahoma, Alexandria to Oak City was 525 miles and it, to Tulsa was 450. And the loop was over 1,000 miles and you'd do both shows in the same day on Sunday. So many times we would leave Saturday night, drive straight to Oklahoma City, do the show, bop over to Tulsa, do the show, and then drive back to Alexandria and get home about six o'clock on Monday morning so we could sleep until noon and get up and leave at two o'clock to go to New Orleans, which was every Monday night. So I so the point is we moved, we drove to Alexandria on Christmas Eve and we got a hotel room. And this was before I was a seasoned traveler. I assumed when we got to the city that we would just pick from a variety of uh, hotels and motels that we're sure they have available in, in an area of town that we might like to examine living in, right? We drive into the middle of Alexandria, Louisiana on Christmas Eve 40 fucking years ago, and there is not a, I think there was an Econolodge, but otherwise than that, there was not a name brand hotel chain in that town. We ended up staying at the Alexandria Motor Lodge which was also the place where the fans tarred and feathered Bobby's Lincoln after we tarred and feathered Magnum TA on television. But we got a room there, and we think, okay, as soon as we can, we're going to start looking for apartments, and more on that at another time. But the next day was Christmas Day, and that's where we were going to start in New Orleans. So we've driven each of our car. Dennis had the van that he bought from Stan Lane that the fucking top vent leaked. Bobby had the USS Alabama, which was a 1976 Lincoln Continental with I don't know how many hundred thousand miles on it. And I had my Datsun Maxima that I'd gotten for good gas mileage when uh, when I'd wrecked the, the first car I got when I got into business. We'll tell that story another time as well. But now, you know, and, and Dennis had a little Christmas tree in the front of his, his passenger seat in his van when we drove down on Christmas Eve. So it's Christmas Day. We get up. We don't want to be late. So it's 200 miles to New Orleans. We've never made this trip. We see a lot of it is two-lane. So we leave about fucking, I guess, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, which at that time was plenty of time to get somewhere. And we get down there, and Brian, this is the first time we saw the downtown municipal auditorium in New Orleans, Louisiana, the dog's house. And it was winter time, and that means even when we got there, we got there early, it was still dark, and we were scared. 
I don't know what the neighborhood looks like now, but it was not hospitable to three fucking country boys who had never been to New Orleans before. When we went there for the first time, you could tell it, the, the downtown municipal auditorium was like a lot of the older buildings in some of the major said the Keel Auditorium in St. Louis, Ellis Auditorium in, in Memphis that had wrestling matches in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But before they built regular sporting arenas, specifically for basketball or whatever in cities, they had these megalithic old auditoriums in these downtown parts of, of town that would hold boxing or concerts or goddamn political conventions, right? They were all-purpose buildings. And this thing was huge, and it stood not, when I say downtown New Orleans, I'm not talking about Bourbon Street. I'm talking about the actual down, the old downtown part of New Orleans where you would see the old office buildings and, you know, in the distance, courthouses or whatever. But it was not a, a great neighborhood at night, and especially, you know, if you were sideways of the junkyard dog, that's the building where the stories have always been told about the time that DiBiase turned heel on dog. Grizzly Smith had to drive DiBiase out of the building in the trunk of his car because the people were waiting to kill DiBiase. And they knew who Grizzly was. They didn't know what Grizzly was, but the fans all loved Grizzly because he was the representative of the promotion. And he would regularly drive his car into one of the the garage doors in the back of the auditorium. I'll tell you why in a second. And if it necessary, he could eat in that night. It was, he took DiBiase out in the trunk of his car. The fans weren't going to harm Grizzly, but they were going to kill DiBiase. They did. This was an old building by every stretch of the imagination, probably built in the twenties, maybe the thirties. And you parked in the, even the wrestlers, in the parking lot adjacent to it across a side street. And that's why we always tried to get there early. The cops there discouraged the fans from hanging around the, the back door where the wrestlers came in before the show and after the show as well. But if something happened hot, as it often did with the dog in his heyday, then they would legitimately... Brian, you've seen cops from Mardi Gras where they have the... The cops on horseback, crowd control, riding horses through people to herd them, right? Yeah. They would they would do that to get the angry fans away from trying to kill the heels that had fucked with the dog. They'd have the cops out on horseback. And ironically, by the time that we got there, inside the building in New Orleans was probably one of the safest places in the Mid-South Territory. It was just, it was scary as fuck in the dark, especially going from your car at the parking lot to into the door and then you were fine and then going out again. If you had any heat, but you'd get an escort going out. When I first started getting Mid-South tapes when I was uh, much younger, I was always trying to figure out what does it say on the barricade there? And then you realize once you get a better quality copy, oh, that's the police. New Orleans police line. That's what I was going to say. They had had such trouble in the downtown auditorium and wrestling matches at that point in time from the seventies. And, and then when dog got hot and they started turning people away and et cetera, Tony Zane was a 
And I, I liked him. I'm not insulting him. He was a job guy. He was from Rome, Georgia, started out with Arn Anderson. They started together, just doing little indie shows of the time, Outlaw. And he got booked down there. One, I think it was summer of 82 or something like that. And he was just doing jobs in the opening matches. He ran into the ring in New Orleans to do a pull apart when the top guys, the top main event stars were fighting. And he was just a nameless guy there to pull them apart. And when the fans hit the ring and stabbed him, he showed me the fucking scar. He's like, and so I'm thinking, my God, and this is, I've heard these things, right? And I'm like, now I'm going to New Orleans. But by the time we got there inside the building, they'd had so much trouble that they had instituted the security measures that they took. And that's what you saw in a lot of those early and mid 80s tapes was they didn't have, again, security guards or ushers. They had on-duty fucking New Orleans police that don't take any fucking bullshit whatsoever, right? And that's the building where the, the door, and many shoots have told about this from Duggan and DiBiase, where if the fans hit the ring, try to get the heel, the cops would drag them and throw them in the room, the door right next to the back door, and let the heel go in for... 60 seconds or 120 seconds or whatever the time period was, and then throw the fucking fan out the back door in the alley. That's the door the wrestlers were coming in and out of from the parking lot I was talking about. And so all that had gone on to the point where now they had bicycle rack New Orleans police line barricades like they have at Mardi Gras, you see on cops, and they had... Well, the, the Midnight Express and Road Warriors tag title change in 88, the NWA world tag title, that was from the downtown auditorium in New Orleans, even though it wasn't Mid-South Wrestling, the police and the building determined that perimeter. The promoter didn't have anything to do with it because they kept getting sued. So you had 15 feet easily from the ring to the front row with this police barricade and police in uniform with guns sitting all around on the other side of it watching the crowd. And you had to come out a side door from a backstage area because, again, this is like an old convention hall type of place, Asbury Park maybe, right? You could. So you were in a big area, and then you went right down a short aisle that the cops walked you by. You didn't have to go through the people, and you were already at ringside because of the configuration of the building. So inside, by that point, that building was safe. But in its day, the job guys got stabbed. That's how bad it was. And when did you buy your bulletproof vest? I didn't buy it. Remember? The, when were the you top, given? Yeah, that's right. When were you given it? It was it was warm weather. So I'm going to say probably down there in Little Rock, Mayish, spring springtime, late spring, early summer. Because well, I mean, you know. Some different cops in different towns took different levels of interest in what they were supposed to be doing. And I always tried to be as nice and make friends with all of them. Right. And I, we learned that from Dick Beyer. He'd go out. That is his first thing. He'd go out and joke and shake hands with all the fucking cops. Cause that was, you know, <laughs> literally who that was going to fucking save your life. If it was going to be saved that night. And, you know, some of them were just doing their job and some of them, you know, would 
go above and beyond to take care of you. And, you know, you just had to kind of figure out which ones, but, you know, they were not in any way compared to today the frivolous or level of security that, or lack thereof that there is today at these shows. No, you, if you were a heel, you did not enter the arena or a public area, or at least if you were running across a hall for 15 seconds without a uniformed police officer with you, or you were in trouble. But anyway, so we show up at the downtown auditorium. And by the way, we beat Bleepin' Lanny Poffo and Rick Rude in an underneath match to get us over. And that was the thing about the downtown auditorium is business was down everywhere in the territory, as we've talked about. But the dog's heyday in New Orleans, you know, we've done the the shows also talking about the people were starting to realize why is he in the hood so much and something's going on with dog. So the, the downtown auditorium was the, one of the last holdovers of the old time Louisiana territory wrestling from the forties and fifties and sixties. Watts had upgraded. He was already in the big buildings in Oklahoma and he had annexed Paul Bosch's Sam Houston Coliseum. And he had made, you know, the building in Monroe, Louisiana, the Civic Center was beautiful. And Lake Charles, was the Civic Center was beautiful. And Baton Rouge, the Centriplex, the brand new, you know, city-owned building. But they had stayed at the downtown auditorium. And I think probably the reason they did so long was because the dog got so hot that they couldn't afford to leave it. Because there wasn't big money in the in the downtown auditorium. The way it worked was there was a curtain across the middle of the building. And that's you could use half the building, which is what they primarily were doing by this point. They'd opened it up a bunch of times when dog was hot. But half the building would seat about 3,500 people. And then if they drew that, that old kind of velour... 40, 50 foot high stage curtain that was so heavy it was on chains. And if you stood next to it, the mildew would make your eyes water. When they, if they drew that back, they could seat up to like six or 7,000 people. And there was also a stage where you could have stage plays and productions. And the audience was primarily the downtown, the African American crowd that supported Dog and the Honestly, the the people that lived downtown and a bunch of drunk Cajun guys that didn't mind coming downtown, it wasn't even a town where there was only the hardiest and bravest of the rats dared, you know, show up, right? And, but at the same time, they had drawn so much money with dog, and that was a thing. If you ran New Orleans, Louisiana for wrestling anytime from the, what, 1940s on, you were running the downtown auditorium on a Monday night or it didn't exist and nothing else had ever been tried except for when the auditorium wasn't available every once in a while, they'd go over to the St. Bernard civic center in St. Bernard parish, which seated 2000 people. And it was like, if we, we can't run the town unless we run this building type of thing. So our initial thought was, holy shit, I bet we could probably get killed in this building if we were hot. And how are we going to make any money here? Your thoughts. 
It's interesting that that would be the first thought you had in New Orleans. Obviously, like you said, Watts had different options. Superdome for big shows, UNO Lakefront. Well, no, he didn't. Not now. I don't know when the UNO Lakefront was built or opened, but they had never run it at that point. We we were going to run it. Uh, I don't have my 84 book, but it was the first time was going to be in several months. So at that point in time, and I knew about the Superdome, and that's another thing we're, we're talking about. We're like, okay, they they put 30,000 people in a Superdome, but this is their regular building. Because, I mean, this building made the Mid-South Coliseum look like goddamn the Silverdome, right? In terms of old and wore down in the neighborhood and the whole nine yards. I mean, you could see they could sell it out and make some fucking money, but it wasn't like, wow, we the yellow brick road is paved with gold. So we saw where we could probably get killed, but we didn't think that New Orleans was maybe going to be our favorite town. However, when we got our check, we made $175. Now think about, and that's three times, right? So 350, 525 bucks for a preliminary match. And the biggest payoff I've yet had in the wrestling business was $300, which was June 6th because Little-known trivia, the semifinal under the Lawler-Dundee loser lead town match had drew 11346 grand in the gate record was the fabulous ones against Duke Myers, Bobby Eaton, Jimmy Hart, and me. So I got 300 bucks for that, and my biggest week in the business had been just under 900 which today would be 27 so not fucking bad. But, you know, we hadn't gotten our check yet when we saw New Orleans, but that was the payoff. So there there was a pattern developing here, which I'll get to at the end of the week. When were you paid? Well, that's the thing. You got your check on Wednesday mornings at interviews in Shreveport. When you would walk, when the talent would walk in, baby faces were at one table, heels were at the other table with the formats and the list of the promos we were going to do. And your check with your little name showing through the window, right? And you got a check for a week's period of time, but he held back a week. So the first check you got was two weeks after your, you started working. He held back everybody's money for a week because that way if you walked out on the territory, no-showed without notice, left hotel bills or otherwise fucked up he had some of your money he could pay all the shit with so it the people weren't hot at the wrestling company and that also prevented you in a lot of cases from walking out without notice because you were giving up two weeks worth of pay instead of one but nevertheless we went to the following day so we you know that was our experience and and really you know besides for the ambiance of the thing you could see the, the wrestling matches of the 40s, Wild Bill Longson wrestled here. I mean, the, the old building that was cool for that standpoint, but we're kind of like, eh. What's it like being in the back when the dog's music hits? Because you, were, um, you didn't hear that much music being played in the back throughout your career so far because it was really just being introduced on a widespread basis. Well, here's another thing. You I ran the music. <laughs> no, no. I well, yeah, I ran the music a lot, but no, I didn't hear the dogs me because when you went in that door in the downtown auditorium, you would turn left, you'd be in like this big open area place. Like I said, this could be a convention hall or whatever. They 
they could have fucking exhibitions in this big open area and you would walk all the way down and go behind this other wall and there would be a room where you would dress in. So by the time you got down there, you couldn't hear what was going on outside. If, if there was a run-in, you had to plant yourself in front of the door or elsewise you wouldn't be. You had to peek out the actual door down the aisleway to see what the fuck was going on in the ring. Or in some cases, you could stand over in a dark little corner next to that door still behind bicycle rack railings if you wanted to scope out the other talent that was available. And in terms of music, this is the first time, the first time you're going around with your own music for the Midnight Express. How do you handle that? Yes. Who's running the music and what do you do? Well, I was proactive at the start because being used to being the spot show ring announcer and fucking, you know, fallback whatever fill-in announcer, I always had like five copies of our cassette tape in my bag, but also we put a a boom box in the trunk of the car, whatever car we were taking to the shows, until it got to be a common thing that every building had a cassette player. Because back in the not every building we were working in even had a fucking cassette player. So you would stick the fucking thing in the boom box, turn it up, and hold the PA mic in front of one of the speakers. That was how you played the entrance music. So I always had our tapes, and we always had a boom box. But with again, with Mid-South, except every once in a while on a spot show, it, they always, Grizzly was taking care of the box office and shit, but Jack Curtis was in a lot of the towns supervising who the ring announcer was. They had either their own boom box, and then I think Pee Wee, Randy Anderson, one of the referees, because he had dogs music. So they had, even though not everybody had music, and I think we were maybe, besides the Freebirds, we were the, probably the first heels in Mid-South to do music. They had already kind of played it, so they they had the structure in place. But it was still a new thing, and most people didn't have it. Is that, Have we just blown some of the younger fans' minds? I mean, again... That's why I bring this up, because it's so easy to think that this is all just an everyday occurrence. All this stuff was introduced with music during this period of time. Yes. And, you know, within the previous, what, couple of years, it all started to come together between, well, Leroy Brown was in 77. That wasn't, you know, repeated often. And then the Freebirds started in 79, so we were still in the first few years of it. But 84 is the year that Mid-South really embraced it, not just with ring entrance music for, like you said, heels like you and tons of baby faces and the Rock and Roll Express would come in, Fantastics would come in, PYTs would come in, but the music videos too. And that was the big thing, even WWF, obviously Memphis really got it going with this. This was the beginning of a short period of time, the era of the music video before people... <laughs> Worried about rights fees or anything. Well, and that, and that's why they that uh, Jerry Jarrett sent Randy West, his son-in-law, down to Louisiana to teach Joel Watts how to edit the MTV music videos. And I'm not sure that it ever translated. Joel was just, he wasn't a rock and roll kind of guy. He did all but right. He did all but right. But he was a good guy, and a, but I don't know if he was a rock and roll video editor. Uh, but that's the thing with Jerry Jarrett. He did, you know, again, he was not like a rock and roll fan, but you, he had the mind to think of things. You can see him telling Randy with the spit cup, right? Randy, make them baby faces a video like they got on the cable on my TV that they've just started playing because I think the girls is going to like that shit. 
Yeah, what cable channel was he watching? And they did those fabulous one videos in his bathtub. No, come on. Hey, I'm telling you, <laughs> if you watched MTV from 1982 lately, there was a lot of provocative provocation going on. But that's the thing. He could see that. So anyway. But that was such a new thing. I mean, even though, again, the Beatles hit in 64 here in the States. And between then and 84, there really isn't a lot of a rock and roll connection to wrestling. Beyond like the rock and wrestling connection, just simple things. Music being included on the television show, let alone ring entrance music, let alone young hip people that seem to be connected to that part of pop culture, it all changed in 84. And you've got the fabulous Jackie Fargo to thank for it. If he, hadn't, if he hadn't put those two young men together and called them the fabulous ones and they hadn't done that video, dan ain't it, dan ain't why nobody would remember MTV today. No one will remember Jackie on that couch. Heart, you stink. <laughs> you little stink. You're so synthetic. You stinky stink. Well, speaking of stinking, let's get the rest of the week out of the way because I want to get uh, to the two highlights of this, right? Because then Monday, December 26th, we go to Monroe, Louisiana. Now, we're in Alexandria. For uh, this, where we're staying at the hotel and we're our base of operations. So New Orleans was a 400-mile round trip. Monroe was only 100 miles up and back. Wasn't bad. I spent $10 on food that day, by the way, because of fucking Wendy's triple, as we've talked about, was $5. So multiply that twice. And we beat Lanny and Rude again, and we made another $100. And I remember Monroe, the Civic Center, big building, nobody there. And that's where we were like, well, they said that the territory was down. <laughs> and it certainly was. And then the next day, we went to Shreveport, the 27th. And this was not a TV taping. This was the Shreveport Auditorium for a house show, the house show they did every two weeks on a Tuesday night. And remember, as I said, like Monroe, they were already in the Civic Center. Baton Rouge, I can't even remember what the building was they ran in the old days, but they're already at the Centriplex. Lake Charles got a nice new building, but Shreveport... And they never left while we were there, the old municipal auditorium, the same place that broadcast the Louisiana Hayride on radio in the 40s and 50s that was one of the first, if not the first, national radio broadcast that Elvis Presley ever did. And not only were we in the same building, they had the same goddamn custodian. And he could tell you the stories and the you could go out on the stage where there had been Hank Williams Jr. and there had been Elvis and there had been all these fucking radio stars and all the wrestling stars that had gone on. It was still the same curtain. And they it looked like one of those Hollywood movies of backstage where they have the old uh, ropes holding up all of the scenery and all of the partitions and it's tied off and everything. It was cool as shit, right? Nobody fucking there. Not a goddamn soul. The payoff was $60. And again, because they ran that place every two weeks for TV and every two weeks in that building, and they had been since wrestling had been in Shreveport. That may have been the oldest building that they had in the goddamn collection of them. It was a cool building. And that's where Sputnik Monroe, for quite some time, lived in Shreveport and worked, I think, as a 
I believe he was a security guard at that point, or he may have been working for some factory. But nevertheless, he told the story of where back in the sixth, late 50s, I guess, when Buddy Fuller had opened the town, you remember that, that you know, he would always take Sputnik wherever he, you know, went with him, and Sputnik had got over there. And so then they he'd gone on to somewhere else, and they called him back in because they said, you got to teach these guys how to take bumps. So he set up the contest where if you could take a backdrop and kick the ring lights, because at this old auditorium, they had the old, like, upside-down bathtub-looking ring lights, right? You can see them in the old videos, the old films. If you can take a backdrop and kick the fucking uh, ring lights, they bet like $50 or whatever. Whoever can do that gets it. So what Sputnik did, he was in the main event. He watched guys all night taking backdrops, taking backdrops, can't get up there, can't get up there. And then finally, right before the main event, they take an intermission. Sputnik goes and pays the old custodian that can raise and lower all that shit from the stage. While nobody's looking, he lowers the ring lights five feet. Sputnik goes out and takes a backdrop and kicks the fucking thing. Ding! Wins the money. <laughs> anyway, that so this was it was like the old the old days of Louisiana wrestling at the Shreveport Auditorium there, and there wasn't a lot of people there. And we beat Lanny and Root again. And we stayed over, and I'm gonna say that on December 28th, this was either the only time or one of only two times that Bobby and Dennis actually went to local promos. Could you remember you said at the start of our our run there, you would see them standing there in the back wearing sunglasses and glaring menacingly, menacingly or at least Dennis was menacing. Bobby was Bobby. But then you didn't ever saw him again on the local promos because Watts realized well, fuck, they're just standing there. I don't want them to talk. I want Cornette to talk. And it may make them more special if they're not just standing there. So he gave them, for the whole year, they were the only top heels or baby faces that did not have to go to local promos in Shreveport. And uh, fucking other guys were like, bullshit, right? But they had that, that was another thing that made them different. Even the other guys you managed when you were there, Hercules Hernandez, I remember in local promos with you. Yes, and 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 truthfully, because again, Watts knew, okay, I want Cornette talking for this guy, but he needs to be his own guy because it's only a temporary thing. Whereas he had intended to make us, me and the Midnight, a match set, you know, with the other guys, it was just to help them out and to augment but he still wanted to show the guy off and let the guy have a chance to say something so he could, you know. And then later on, I ended up selling Hercules to Akbar, as you'll recall. I do. That was the era of selling wrestlers to Arabian managers. To rich Arabians, yes. And now they just sell wrestling shows to rich Arabians. <laughs> the wrestlers get to come home afterwards. But so we did interviews at... at KTBS, and we did them from 9 o'clock until probably 3 in the afternoon, and then we were off that night. It would not always be that way. As a matter of fact, most of the time it wouldn't be that way, but we got a chance to go back home and get home about fucking 6 in the evening. And the following day, 
was the most disturbing day yet in our parade of terror this week. <laughs> that was our first exposure to Biloxi, Mississippi. You had to go two lanes, 100 miles to Baton Rouge, hop on Interstate 10, go all the way through New Orleans, all the way over to Biloxi, was 250 miles from Alexandria. That means a 500-mile round trip. And, oh, by the way, did I mention in Shreveport we made 60 bucks? I think I said that. But when we got to Biloxi, we saw that it was the Mississippi Gulf Coast Coliseum. I don't know if a lot of people have been there, but Biloxi, Mississippi, it used to be another town in fucking Mississippi until, I guess, in the 70s, somebody realized it was on the beach. It's on the coast. It's the Redneck Riviera. It's not far from Mobile, Alabama and Pensacola, Florida, but it has its own beach, and they they started making some resort hotels and this Gulf Coast Coliseum that seats, to my memory, somewhere around 12, 13, 14, 15,000 people. Which, I don't know if there'd been that many people in Biloxi until 1936. And Watts was, I don't know where they used to run wrestling in Biloxi before Watts opened. I know it wasn't here. And the house, and by the way, remember that I would say in those days, the average ticket price in in Biloxi was probably about eight dollars. The house was eight grand. There was a thousand people in this fucking building. It looked like an AEW television taping. And again, we made a hundred dollars. We beat Lanny and Rick Rude, bless them. But we're thinking, fuck, we heard that the territory was down, but now this is a, a building that seats more people than the Mid-South Coliseum and there's only a thousand people in it. And what they did was they did the curtain thing, right? Where they only used part of it. But also remember, I've talked to you about a, a town that uh, uh, the arena was so dark going to and from the ring that once you left the ring light area, that you were in pitch black and chaos would often occur. The time that the, the big guy attacked Bobby and he front face locked the guy and the guy just wiped out half a ringside with Bobby's body shaking him like an elephant and the fucking guy that was going in his pocket to get something and I kicked him in the fucking nuts and all that shit because it was so dark, right? That was Biloxi. And the smaller the crowd, the more they know they can get away with. They're in pitch black with nobody obstructing their fucking getaway. So, at this point, we were, oh, shit, what is happening here? And then I'm 500 miles back and didn't get back till fucking 3 o'clock, or not 500, but 250 miles back and didn't get back till 3.30 in the morning. We had plenty of time to think about it. But, you know, again, the people that were there were still responsive. It wasn't... You could tell that they had a territory there, that the fans knew what the fuck was going on. They were watching television. There just weren't a lot of them, but the ones that came liked it, right? And you could tell that they were also, even in smaller numbers, they were more dangerous than the, than the Tennessee fans who had seen a lot of shit, right? They'd seen a lot of chaos. And after the 70s, they kind of backed off on being dangerous. But these people... They were still in their 70s period. 
But then we saved the week, Brian. There's two more days. You know what they were? What were they? Houston and Oklahoma City. Ooh. Now, though, now Houston was a big town still at this point in time, so that should be a big show. Well, and but now it was Friday, December 30th, coming up on New Year's. And again, the territory was down, but we went from an $8,000 house in Biloxi and nobody in the auditorium in Shreveport to the Sam Houston Coliseum. And Junkyard Dog was was obviously over there at that point. He had been before before Watts co-opted the deal with, with Bosch and started bringing all of his talent in. Dog was a, a big star there that Bosch had been bringing in. But Nick Bockwinkle was there that night. And there was an AWA title match because, as we've talked about, Bockwinkle earlier had bought a piece of the Houston office from Bosch and was going to retire and and run that. It, unfortunately, the territories didn't last until Nick's retirement, or that would have been a cool thing. But Nick was, and I knew Nick from from Tennessee from the year before. So, and the better, best part of it, the house was $29,000. Now that wasn't good for Houston, but think about this. I had just come from the Memphis territory where Yes, the house in Memphis, if it was over 30 grand, that was that was good. And 40-something was excellent. But even in the 20s was good, and 29 grand would have been a record gate in Louisville. And it was it would have been respectable in Lexington. So this is Houston, and the territory's down, but it's still thirty thousand dollars, which again, in today's money, it'd be 90 grand. So now you know, now we see why a lot of people were saying, yeah, Houston is your, it was your week when you worked in the, the, the Dallas office and they booked talent there. And there was some life there. We got to meet Paul Bosch and, you know, I, I, that's where I met Bruce because I knew Tom because Tom had been in Tennessee. So that made you feel good plus it's a big building and the way the people reacted you could tell that was a wrestling crowd and in all honesty you talked about the reactions in houston and yes they were off the charts to our matches and we got people stirred up enough to cause some issues a couple times but they just loved wrestling and they went ape shit over a lot of the fucking matches and you know it it was it was a it, it was a chance to go back in time because they had wrestling in Sam Houston Coliseum in the 40s but it was still a major building and it was thriving you know at that time so that that was cool we got the best of the old and the best of the new and that's also where we i first got to see how they did the Houston wrestling TV show which as we've talked about was an hour and a half long so they not only used the Mid-South TV from Shreveport, but they augmented it with local stuff that only the Houston market saw. Paul Bosch hosted the interviews. He got a chance to get up there and do them on the PA in front of the live crowd and, and in the line of fire. And, you know, that was great experience also. So that was that perked things up considerably for the tone of the week so far. And then uh, we got our first taste after after the Houston show of the Oklahoma trip because 
I mentioned that Houston from from Alexandria was 250 miles. So was Biloxi. Remember, we were on Thursday. We came back Biloxi to Baton Rouge. Then you go northwest up to the middle of the state to Alexandria. The following day for Houston, that's why the Biloxi Houston was a goddamn energy sapper. You felt like a zombie. The next day you would leave and you would go in the opposite direction, the same amount, about 100 miles of two lane. And then you'd get on Interstate 10 that you took to Biloxi, but you'd be going in the opposite direction and you'd go to Houston and that was 250 miles that way. So you were literally 500 miles from the town you were in the night before. And then from Houston to go to Oklahoma City, we had to drive to Dallas that night, 250 miles, and get a hotel room. We probably got there three o'clock in the morning. And we got a hotel room and stayed in Dallas and then moved, went on to Oklahoma City the next day, which is another 200 miles. Now, because this was December 31st, New Year's Eve, it was not the normal Mid-South schedule. Normally, every other Sunday, Oklahoma City at the Myriad Arena was a two o'clock matinee show, and then Tulsa at the Assembly Center was 7.30. And those towns were only 100 miles apart. So you could work the afternoon card from 2 to 4.30. And even if you were in the main, the main event, if you got out of Oak City by 5 o'clock, you could be in Tulsa by 7, 7.15, and the bell didn't ring till 7.30, so you were golden, right? There was, if you wanted to eat, you might be a little late. But in this case, it was New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1983, and we were booked in Oklahoma City, and we'd never been there before, and we'd never seen the building, and the only thing we could think is, how the fuck are they going to draw a house on New Year's Eve? Because, I mean, I know I'd only been in the business for a year, but I don't remember as a fan ever going to wrestling on New Year's Eve or seeing that it was run on New Year's Eve. And it, it's still not a common thing, and it wasn't a common thing even in the 80s, right? Can you think of famous New Year's Eve or any New Year's Eve shows that you remember? Not off the top of my head, no. Okay, well, we get to Oklahoma City going, how the, what we've seen so far this week, this is going to be death, right? We pull up to the Myriad Arena, which was in the middle of downtown Oklahoma City, and it was, as Barney Fife would say, a showpiece. This was the nicest arena during the time we spent in Mid-South Wrestling in the entire territory. It was bright. It was new. It was beautiful. I'm pretty sure. I, I don't know when they got an NBA team out there, but it was an NBA arena. It would seat 13,000. It was the dressing facilities, dressing rooms were nice. It was a modern building for that time or you know, especially in this territory, right? So we're like, but fuck, when we, once we see it, it's New Year's Eve. Brian, this was not a, a big show or a major house show when we were again just working with Lanny and Rude on the undercard to get over. But so I would imagine the, the tickets were probably 12, 10, 7, and 4. Maybe you could eke out an $8 ticket average, maybe not. Guess what the house was on New Year's Eve in Oklahoma City in a down territory? 
Oof, I, I can't even imagine. What was it? $65,000. That's pretty good. There were over 8,000 people there. And when we walked out and saw that, and also that's when, I remember when they we were standing behind the door that you would go out before you'd go into the, out the heel entrance way, right? The door was open and there's a curtain, so you can hear what's going on. They hit our music and the people didn't cheer and the people didn't boo, the people ooed. And that's when we all kind of got goosebumps because we knew we had them. We hadn't done anything to get heat yet. All we'd done is win matches against job guys on TV. And we were heels, so they certainly weren't going to cheer us. And I'd done some very obnoxious interviews. But normally, you know, you hit the, the first time these people have ever seen us in person. And it's not normal that you hear music, much less everybody identifying everybody's music. When they fucking hit ours, the people were, ooh, it's them. That's what they've not only been watching, but they know who the fuck we are. They figured it's only, they've seen us. And Oklahoma was on the far end of the TV territory, remember? So I don't think they'd seen us more than two weeks at that point. But they'd seen us. So anyway, $65,000 house, our payoff for a preliminary match was $350, which would be $1,050 in today's money, and that house would be almost $200,000. And that was a regular show in Oak City at the time. And that's when we said, okay, now... <laughs> and we had our bookings. We, know, we knew more big towns were coming up, and we knew that we would be featured in bigger matches as we went along. But for the first few, we thought, boy, this... Goddamn Louisville Gardens and the Mid-South Coliseum looks kind of good. We've been hearing all this stuff, but then you see Houston, and then you see Oklahoma City, and then the point is we did not know what we were making for these towns until we got paid. I'm retroactively giving you the amounts, and by the way, Watts was generous enough. He gave you 125 bucks a piece trans to drive to Oklahoma or to go to Oklahoma. However you chose. You didn't care if you took a helicopter. When you were booked in Oak City and Tulsa, you got, besides your payoff, you got $125 trans allowance. You could pile three in a car and make money on that, or you could buy a plane ticket and lose $150. Bucks. It's up to you. But then the following week, as I mentioned, he held back a week. When we got our checks, the money added up to, hold on, one, sixty. 260, 365, 735, 8. No, seven, 785. I believe 785. And then the $125 trans. But you know what we made? No. $1,000. Because he had told Dennis when he presented the idea to Dennis, remember, I told you about Dennis's conversation with me. You guys will make. Between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars in my territory over the course of the year, he bonused us. Remember the bonuses I've told you about. Every once in a while, he'd bonus somebody for going over and above and beyond the call of duty because it was a shitty week. He bonused us so we'd make a thousand dollars. So my first week in this territory, 
that is down that I saw some of the houses were the shits and we were in preliminary matches was the biggest week I'd had so far in the wrestling business. And today it would equal $3,000 in today's money. So that's when we finished the week on a high note and we got our check and we kind of, okay, obviously this is going to work. It, it seems, but you know, for a while, we, a couple of those towns, we were like, uh Oh, but in the long run, everything he said was going to come to pass. He followed through on, and it came to pass. And in, Again, in, in the next six weeks, we were starting to do record gates in some of these towns because of everybody, because of Dundee's booking, because of Watts' ability to talk us all over doing that stream of consciousness, you know, television announcing, because of our work being different and, and honestly a little more heat getting than than what they'd seen and the change in the talent and the blah 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 and the philosophy and the whole nine yards but but still it was the potential was you could see was there because he had so many bigger markets and so many more big buildings than the than the Memphis territory did that if you could even do moderate business in all of those markets you could make a fortune which he did and he did and we did But there you have it. Um, and thankfully, <laughs> Tulsa wasn't on that loop or I may have quit the fucking business before we did all that stuff because I mentioned Oklahoma City was the nicest building and and probably the safest along with New Orleans. And Tulsa was the goddamn most dangerous town in the whole territory and we started six riots there and I got more juice from the fans in Tulsa than in all the other towns that I've ever worked put together. So it wasn't on that week's tour. Amazing end to 83. We've looked at so many of your months, so many of the schedules that you've had. And as we get ready for 2024, we get ready to talk about 1984. One of the great years in wrestling history. One of the great years, the greatest year in Mid-South wrestling history. And the year that cemented Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express into every wrestling fan's mind. George Orwell and I were the only ones that knew that that was an important year. And Vince McMahon, we heard his uh, 1983 Christmas greeting, guaranteed. Well, that's, yeah. Big things in 84. Big things in 84, but, uh, but yes, that was the 83 experience. And again, you know, it, it shows how these things can change. And we talked about Randy Savage's change of fortunes from being unemployed when his father's outlaw promotion sunk to going to work in Memphis and to suddenly the next year being the WWE champion or WWF champion. I went from literally making $75 a week in the wrestling business. Two weeks later, I made a thousand or two twenty-five and 3000 as we've adjusted for inflation and went from being the absolute most dispensable person on the roster to it. it Arguably, and kind of in effect, the the heel that was responsible for a larger territory's record year in business in weeks. Funny how these things work out. It certainly is. And with that, Jim, it is my show. That's right. It's this is your my show. show. I'm, I'm I'm just meandering on till you close, the son of a bitch. Well, we're about to close this thing very, uh, very, very swiftly. But any final words for the listeners? We're going to be back with omnibuses and, of course, any big stories on the YouTube channel. But 
for the final scheduled regular episode of 2023. Final words for the listeners. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, everybody. And in all honesty and without the dramatic hyperbole that we have come to be known for, we love you guys. We couldn't do it without you. We could do without some of you. The bitchers and gripers and complainers out there. But without the loyal audience that listens to this program, we couldn't do it without you. And so with the Cult of Cornet and the the Arcadian Vanguardians and uh, all of the people who support what we do and, and have common sense like that, we love you and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and all the holidays, whatever you celebrate. And the same goes for me and, of course, the staff at Arcadian Vanguard. And with that, we're not going to top that wonderful ending, the nicest thing Jim Cornette has said in 2023 here on the show. That's the nicest thing I've ever said. But stay tuned to the podcast feeds. Big Omnibus is coming. Several amazingly long episodes coming. (laughs) As well as the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Go through the archive at patreon.com slash Cornette. But until next time, for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. We hope everyone had a great 2023. Here's to a great 2024. Tally ho!